Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Mike, thanks for coming back on the channel. It's great to see you again. Very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me back. <laughs> uh, so anybody who hasn't seen the first part of this interview should go back and do that now. Because, they should. Because uh, some of what, what Mike's going to say will make more sense if you've already listened to him talk about <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. We'll see. So, Mike, the plan this time around then is to talk a little bit about um, what it was like to fly the tornado. Yeah. You, you talked a little bit in the last interview about the top three things you liked about it. You mentioned the automated wing sweep and the, the TF and and um, sort of the, the relatively carefree handling of the aeroplane. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about culture and, and what it was like to be in the RAF at that time as, on a frontline squadron. Yeah. Um, and then we'll talk about Red Flag and, and then ultimately your experiences in Iraq. So let's start then with what it was like to fly the tornado. Uh, it was a, a very pleasant airplane, actually. We, bearing in mind, we, we learned to fly the Hawk, which was quite an agile machine and very, very simple. I mean, it, when again, when I went back to instruct at Chivano, you get an airplane, and it took two and a half minutes for the AHARS to erect, so you could get your student who was trying to remember his checks, and you could be taxiing two and a half minutes after you got an airplane and sort of get some real pressure on him. Okay, oh my God, how do I start? But the tornado was very, very different. It was, I mean, it's a much bigger airplane um, for a start. Um, a massively more complex machine. I mean, we, we talked in the last uh, session about the various bits of kit that it had on board uh, in terms of radars and, 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 and fancy nav kit and, and uh, other sensors and things. Um, so that's my my emails kicking off. I just let me just so we don't get um, any more bings going on, depending how popular I am. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had we had your baby last time when we got my emails this time. But there we go. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the airplane itself was it felt much heavier as well um in that the control forces were were much higher it, it seemed to me at the time when i first went onto it a, a little bit unnecessary even that i think it felt flubble surely it could be as agile as you want it to be really but um the, i think um i think it's based on you know I, again i don't know what the starfighter was like but, but the phantom something like that so similar to the control forces but it was actually a very straightforward machine to fly and in particular the um the head-up display um, in, uh, that you looked through um, had all the information you needed to fly the airplane. Was, that was the prime flying instrument, and then, and obviously, you're looking out front. You see, you'd see it anyway. So it, it kind of it kept your head out of the cockpit. But there was always the um, 
the temptation to look at it too much to, you know, because you didn't really. So again, if you've got nothing in front of you, you look out the front and 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 you sort of scan beyond. But in this, you look out the front and the, oh look, there's nice green writing. I'll read that. So it, it, it was in a way a bit of a sort of curse, but but actually it was it was very good in terms of getting you out, having all the information you needed. So um, the airplane flew very well. Um, it, as, as you mentioned before, whatever the wing sweep, it, the handling char- characteristics are pretty much the same. Um, it did communicate to you if you were a bit slow and uh, you know, and the wings needed to come forward, it would start wallowing a bit. Um, it, if you are going a bit fast and the wings need to come back, then it would sort of start buffeting slightly. But it was quite gentle, and, and again, there were no no major vices to it. Um, it did. It was a very draggy machine, though, and less so the clean version with nothing hanging underneath. By the time we got pylons, pods, tanks, God knows what else underneath it, it did. It, it made it very draggy, which meant that if you, you know, if, if you took the power back, it would slow down very quickly. Um, similarly, if you started, you know, pull the nose up, it would slow down very quickly. Um, that said, the reheats were um, were amazing. I mean, most I think, I'm ninety eight percent of statistics are made up, so I'm just making this one up. But basically, most jet engines in reheat, you get you you have about seventy percent of the power is in dry power, and then you can perhaps get another thirty or so in, in reheat, or perhaps eighty, twenty, something of that sort of proportion. In the RB199, it was 50%. So 50%. So effectively, most of the time you're flying on only 50% of the power available. But when you need to reheat, you doubled your engine thrust. So the amount of acceleration that you had with that was quite phenomenal. And it really did you know, sort of push you back in, in, in the seat. So um, you know, that, that was quite exhilarating. And particularly one of the, um, the uh, delivery profiles, weapon delivery profiles that we used was a lofted, a lofted attack, where basically you race in towards the target. And about four miles short of it, you light the burners and you pull up in a 4G pull. And as, as, as the nose comes up and p- passes about sort of 15, 20 degrees, the bomb comes off. And then you do this um, wing over, which is an instrument. Pro- you know, you, it's a procedure on instruments because people tried to look out the window and end up crashing. So the whole thing was a procedural, you know, bomb gone. And then you went head down immediately, rolled to... Um, 135 degrees bank, keeping on the pull, and then as the as it came down, you, you then roll bank off to be at 90 degrees. You part the nose past the horizon, rolling down to be wings level at 10 degrees nose down, and then you're kind of passing through probably about a thousand feet, 1500 feet to then level off and, and come out. But so that's doing that at night time is quite exciting. Um, but again, that initial bit where you put the heaters in, um, it really did sort of push you as you, you know, and, and you're accelerating up the hill as well. So it's uh, yeah, very very impressive. So the airplane itself was, I think it was pretty benign as well. That, that it had no great sort of handling characteristics that were going to bite you in the bum. You could pretty much pull it, yank it, do, do whatever. I did once depart it. In fact, a couple of people had departed it by trying to brake very hard with the, the air brakes. So the air brakes came out either side of the tail, tail fin. And the critical thing about Tornado is it was very, it was very short machine, so it had this massive great big tail fin. And if you did things to disrupt the flow of the tail fin, then um, the, the, then the airplane did lose stability, directional stability fairly quickly. And, and a couple of people that I was aware of did actually break into the circuit quite aggressively, put the speed brakes out, pull, and the airplane still went dunk, <laughs> flipped uh, the, the, the beginning of an alteration. My, my own experience of that was there's a thing called spills. Um, in order to stop people spinning the airplane and departing like that, uh, this thing, um, which was called, I think, Spin Protection and Incidence Limitation System, spills, and that was supposed to feed into the, um, uh, the fly-by-wire system to stop you from over, uh, uh, from over, um, over-alphering it, so from, from putting too, too much angle of attack. Um, and in that, it was, um, I think, relatively successful, but my, my own experience of it was... Um, on in a, a 
uh, combat mission we, we talked about this earlier on, I extended out of the fight, looking back over my shoulder. And when I looked for the opportunity to come back, I pulled hard back. What I hadn't noticed, as I mentioned earlier, is how the nose was going up, the speed was coming back. And when I pulled back, obviously, I over alphaed the machine. So the first thing I found is I pulled the stick back and to, back to my right, is the nose went sideways to the left. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, but, but again, at the moment that I centralized everything, it, it popped straight out again. So there was a sort of heart stopping moment where I was like, oh my God, what have I done? The navigator didn't even notice actually. His, his, <laughs> his, his first clue that something was going wrong was when I, when I said, yeah, control centralized heights and which, you know, reading through all the bold face drill for, for, um, for spin recovery. But, um, I think the thing came out. Uh, so, so again, I mean, the, the machine was very, very benign, really. You know, if, 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 if it was difficult to mishandle. If you did a bit, then you just had to let go and it sorted itself out. So, um, it, it was a, um, you know, it, it was a very, very pleasant aeroplane to fly. Um, and it was also, um, it was very quiet, um, uh, which sounds probably a bit silly, but, um, you know, we, we, if we took our masks off, we could shout to each other and hear each other. Whereas most, I think like if you try that, it's like a phantom. I don't think you'd be able, well, I think there was also a blast screen between the two cockpits, which there wasn't in the tornado. So, mm. um, it, which, which all comes down to it being not, not very tiring so you could fly long missions in it without without being fatigued just by being discomforted because again the seat was relatively comfortable it was quite a large um cockpit so again you weren't cramped up or anything um instruments were easy to see controls easy to reach so um and generally speaking a pretty good um air conditioning system as well so so it, it was a very pleasant environment and the airplane flew nicely as well um the i did ask me a lot of times when i'd been uncomfortable and the only time i was i, I can say be, being petrified in the airplane was actually when we started um, um ultra, ultra low flying so we'd fly around in germany mostly at 500 mostly at 500 feet but there were big low flying areas at 250 feet and we've been brought up in the uk where the low flying system was at 250 feet so you feel quite comfortable flying around at 250 feet um above the ground you know, looking around looking behind you all those things that i mentioned to you about being in the hawk you know looking behind you uh, still had to do it in the tornado had to an extent um but once you get down as you get lower it gets exponentially more difficult and more terrifying and i just remember the first time we're out in canada in goose bay um and being sort of coaxed down by i think i can't remember if we did we, we, i think it, it was with a with a navigator actually so he didn't even have a two sticker but so it was very trustworthy of them talk down to fly at 100 feet and at 100 feet and 420 knots you're you really are motoring i mean you're you know it feel it really does feel like the world is whistling past at uh, you know three times the speed of sound and uh, you know you feel like you're about six inches off the top of the tree so it's and it was actually quite terrifying thinking you know it, it, it i just did a slight hiccup and we'll fly into the ground um again you know you, it, it, a practice makes perfect and an exposure to that sort of then makes you get to stage with it again comfortable doing it and you know, when you know, then you can you're scanned from being bolted you know, like a rabbit in the in the um in the headlights looking straight out the front you know, got the whole and crash uh, into being able to look around a bit and then being able to look around a lot to then being quite comfortable doing things but um it's it was a it was quite a sort of um a, you know culture change from 250 down to, to 100 feet so uh yeah certainly that that uh, did caused me some anxiety when i first did it <laughs> you, you talked about range and mm. the comfort of the airplane and that sort of lending itself well then to going and flying longer missions but you also talked about drag um yeah what what realistically then was your operational radius i mean how far unrefueled could you go and, and hit something yeah i mean that, that's critical bit is unrefueled so we generally flew around with um two 1500 liter tanks um, and that gave us enough fuel to fly around for an hour and three quarters, maybe possibly two hours. Um, so we'll say, well, 
at full 20 knots so roughly speaking if you're going to go there and back and have a bit of sort of um, contingency we're talking about sort of 450 miles statute miles 420 nautical miles um, so that, that that sort of distance. Um, that's going low, low with that tank. You, we could add on another tank, which would give us perhaps a little, an, an, um, a third tank. In fact, one of the fits, one of the operational fits was with a, with a single weapon and a um, and, and a 1500 litre tank on the other shoulder pile underneath the fuselage. And that would get you to, I mean, from Bruggen, would get you to sort of into Western Poland and back again at low level. Um the later after the Gulf War, we started flying with twenty-two fifty-litre tanks, which um, which gave you even more fuel. Um, so you'd have just two twenty-two fifties, and that would get you. Well, that, you know that, that that was that probably you're probably looking at the ability to fly perhaps you know two two hours fifteen, two hours thirty at low level in that kind of fit. High low high, um, depending on how long you spend at height and how and you know, how you divide it up. I mean, we'd go um, one of the sort of night sorties from Bruggen would be. Out of Bruggen, um, high level up to twenty odd thousand feet across towards uh, the Northumberland coast, down across um, TFing, because it's a nighttime sortie, um, across the, the the borders and out to Jerby Range on the Isle of Man, um, drop a bomb, climb out, and and return back. So that kind of that length of sortie, I will say, what did it have? I don't know, fifteen minutes worth of low level in a two and a half hour sortie, so something of that order. Um, but that, that gives a rough idea of the, of the reach. As you, as you said, you know, once you start refueling, then uh, you know it becomes almost infinite, really. Um, did, did you have any um, affiliation with, or did you do any affiliation work with the F one elevens that were at Lake and Heath and, and up? No, no, we didn't. We didn't have any anything to do with them at all. They, they were in their own, own little world, um, and really, the only time we'd see them would be, you know, if they had to be on the range before us or after us, really. So, um, no, we didn't. And in fact, we did, we had very little to do with. Really, very little to do with with both other um, NATO forces while we were generally operating. I mean, uh, as I mentioned, I think last time, you know, if you went out to the flying areas, it was full of airplanes, so you'd see people to fight. Um, but in terms of doing combined missions, not that much. Um, and indeed, we, um, we we didn't really have much to do with Larbrook either, because Larbrook's on NATO wing. Um, we 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 had more to do with the Phantom wing at uh, Fildenrath. Um, trying to sort things out, like we, you know, perhaps them giving a fighter escort against the cap, or, or them doing a cap with us flying against it, that kind of stuff. Then we did with the Larbrook squadrons. We did, we did, we tended not to. And uh, oddly enough, one of the, one of the things which was started by well, I think what I can't station commander it was now was trying to get the Bruggen wing flying together because there were four squadrons, each of whom was an individual. Although there was a kind of tornado force. Uh, standard operation procedure everybody had kind of nuanced it a slightly different way and you know because i'm on this squadron i'm better than that squadron <laughs> because i'm at bruggen i'm better than larbrook because we're in rf germany we're rf germany we're better than marum etc so uh, there was this great reluctance to um you know not invented here thing you know if, if somebody has come up with a tactic well they do this at marum well, we don't want to know about that because we're better than them <laughs> but um yeah it starts off i can't remember which station one it was started saying right what we'll do is we'll put a four ship up and we'll have you know one uh, one aircraft from each squadron and then it later built up into having right. We'll put up a you know we're going to put an eight ship with you know four aircraft from two squadrons or you know um, two from each or or, or you know, mixing it and matching it matching it somehow. So people did get um, to to be more interoperable and, and a bit more flexible. Um, you you talked in the, in the last um, interview about a little bit about 
you, you know, protecting your wingman's mm. um, six and being able to turn in and fire off an aim nine if yeah. necessary. Uh, and we we did talk about the fact it's not really a, a dog. It's not a dog fighter. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I did wonder, you, you mentioned about the nearly departing control flight as you were sort of pitching back into <laughs> to the flight. Did you have any sort of sneaky tricks you could play? I mean, I know one of the things that that the, the dogfighting guys are taught is to look for cues around um, energy state um, on the aircraft they're flying. And sweat wing fighters can give that away by having the wings all the way forward or all the way back. There are a number of different cues. Did you have any sort of little sneaky tricks that you could pull to try and lull someone into a false sense of security? Um um, not not really in that. The one um, I, I think I did mention last time, the sort of um, the idea that you know if, if you got attacked by fighters on the way into a target, you'd probably just split, <laughs> and uh, you know whoever it was would uh, would bravely go off and drag the fighter away. But one of the th- the tactics that we did practice a lot was you try and get the, the fighter behind you, and if you um, particularly if you're carrying a, a retard um, weapon thousand pound uh, retarded bomb is that when he got behind you then dropped a bomb and of course when that went bang he'd go straight into all the uh, you know imagine the clump and, and muck that that throws up so you know that that was one of the, the defensive um, options that, that was there if you got you know to, to take the, the fighter away from the other formation and wait till he got behind you and then drop a bomb in it you know, in his face mm. um and that, that was a, a well-recognized um tactic that uh, sort of nato wide really um, but other than that, no, not really. I mean, certainly in, in air-to-air combat, when we're doing 1v1s and, and stuff like that, you might sometimes come in and have the wings all the way back in 67, so the guy thought you were going really fast, <laughs> even if you weren't. <laughs> um, but but other than that, no. The, and, and because the wing sweep was um, manual, because um, I think the um, the Tomcat had uh, auto wing sweep, and I think there was talk of whether it happened or not, I don't know, the Tomcat 3 having uh, wing sweep, uh, automatic wing sweep. The Tomcat was all manual, so, you know, you... We generally left it in forty-five, you know, unless you're manoeuvring hard, and, and the, the guy would be—it'd be pretty obvious to the guy that you had your wings for, you know, um, mm. if, if you're doing that. So, you know, because if, if you didn't, you wouldn't be turning very well. So, uh, you know, you can just see, just tell by the rate at which you're turning that you've got the wings forward. But yeah, you know, therefore you might be a bit slower. Um, but no, no, there was there was nothing really nuanced in that in that way. You know, we kind of just went in and sort of did our thing. I, th- I think the the Saudis had the automatic wing sweep on the F three. Uh, I think, I think we, that's right. I think yeah, it's installed on ours, but we turned it off apparently. Was, uh, well, I think a bit like um, you know the way that sort of automatic systems work. They they don't look forward; they look behind. So it gives you the wing suit that you would have wanted you know, three seconds yeah. ago, kind of thing. So <laughs> so to an extent, a bit of a chocolate teapot. Although you know, on occasions, and, and we all did it on occasions of you know, rattling along at four feet, you're not thinking, "Why is your airplane buffeting you? Why are you in twenty five wing?" You know, <laughs> sorry. So it would have stopped that, I suppose. <laughs> so speaking of which, am I correct in thinking I, I read this somewhere recently that? There was an idiosyncrasy in the wing sweep mechanism, which meant that if you pulled the handle back, the wing sweep handle back to sweep the wings further back, but then you decided actually you wanted it where it was, the wings would have to cycle to the back position before they would come back to the 45-degree position. Do you you recollect that? I don't recollect that at all, no. I mean, I I, I imagine they might have decided they needed to go to wherever it was you put the lever first. So so if if you brought it a bit back and then went, oh, dear me, yeah, from from forty five to maybe you got about fifty degrees before you change your mind. They probably would go, hang on, let's go to fifty first, and then I come back to whatever it was you, you just selected. I don't recall there being an, any um, any limitation on that. Um, I think we tended to be fairly um, careful about doing that. In that, you've got an awful lot of hydraulic pressure wanging through the system, and if you pull it back and put it straight back up again, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So, um, I, but I'm, I'm not aware of that. But, but that may well be my ignorance rather than. Uh, 
rather than the actual fact of the matter. <laughs> so so you, you talked about the RB199 then. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I'd like to go back to Wingsweep in a minute yeah, and talk about yeah. what, what happens when they get stuck. Oh, yeah, I'm telling um, you that. But, but, <laughs> so, so, um, but before we do that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about RB199. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Obviously, you've got um, an optimized um, sort of low-level version of the RB199. The yes, ADV yeah. has a, an optimized medium and high altitude yes. uh, RB, RB199. Um, how did the aeroplane perform then at medium and high altitudes? And um, presumably, you did do air-to-air refueling. That was a capability brought into the fleet while you were flying. The tornado. That's right, yes. Um, what, what was that like? Right, so talk about the engines first. As you said, the whatever the F3 had was optimised for um, medium levels. But what you must remember is the whole engine was optimised for low level. It's designed as a low-level cruise engine. So it's designed to take you at 420 knots for, you know, as I mentioned, you know, an hour, an hour and a bit eastwards <laughs> and then, then come back again somewhat lighter so there the engine was very very good at low level it was very economical i think uh i think what the um fuel burn was but it was almost i mean it was it was about twice what a hawk so i think the hawk burnt 35 and it might it was something like 70 or 80 kgs a minute burn which when you think about it is you know if you had to pass the, the thrust that's coming out of it and what it's pushing on was pretty good so those are the sort of figures of, of fuel burn. Um, and it was very responsive at low level. Um, and, it, yeah, it, it was fantastic. Once you were climbing out, and we used to climb, I think, about 295 knots or something like that, um, 275 even, I think it was, uh, in you know, normal, normal fit. But once you were climbing that and you pulled those up, once you got through 5,000 feet, it, the whole thing just went, mm. <laughs> it was... <laughs> it kind of dies. And you, what does it handle like at 20,000 feet? Well, sack of spuds, really. I mean, it was designed at low level. The airplane, the wing was designed at low level. The engine was designed at low level. So you've got an engine that's performing not at its best. You've got a wing that's performing not at its best. You've got a very draggy airplane. So really not ideal. Um, so, um, I mean, that's me being very fussy. If you think that probably most of the last 20-odd years of its service Perhaps more than that. Well, yeah, last twenty odd years of its service was um, was flown at medium level operationally. So you know, it, it, it didn't mean you couldn't do it, but it did mean the airplane didn't handle them quite the way that one might be used to if uh, one was used to flashing around at low level in in Germany or whatever. So, so it was um, not an inspiring machine at, at, at medium levels. And again, you had to be, you know, you, you couldn't whack. Well, you could whack on loads of bank, but that would be followed by a fairly major drop in altitude. <laughs> um, there's some videos. There was a video that we took, or one of the guys took on our detachment out of Daran and you see this airplane go along and it sort of goes wax like that and then you sort of see it as it, as it, as it plummets earthwards like a, much like a Stuka so uh, <laughs> but 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 as I say yeah we, we did do you know we did do air combat we did, we did turn it upside down you know all those things um but we you know you just have to be fairly fairly careful and or act you know with, with huge amounts of power onto it to um to overcome the drag so you know if you're maneuvering it in in, in air-to-air combat you need the you need the reheats and pretty much if you you know if you were um, um maneuvering hard um, so, so that then does beg the question: how, how was how was it on the tanker then? Um, the it, it was well, it's difficult actually. The, uh, tanking was yeah. I was, I was going to say that the, I mentioned being scared stiff the first time I did operational. I flying down 100 feet, and I remember being scared stiff the first time I went to the tanker as well because you spend all your time learning close formation, trying not to hit the other airplane, and suddenly now into thing we've got to try and hit it, which is uh, really <laughs> sort of goes against the grain. Um, and uh, again, there was an art to it, and it's a bit like right well it was very much like riding a bike actually in that um 
the first few times you do it, you think this is impossible. What? How on earth can anybody do this? Because it, it's you know, if, I, if you sit on a bike and like you know, and and, and you think how, how does this work? And suddenly something happens, you know, and click, and you, you can do it. And then you can't remember how you couldn't do it. And then when you have a break and you come back to it, you go, oh yeah, you do something like this, and the clunk it works. So yeah, that that was. Um, and it, yeah, there, there was fascinating learning it, particularly learning that new school because I, I, we didn't do it in Germany. We, we didn't need to because all our targets were at low levels, as we discussed. There was no requirement for us to do it, so we didn't do it. Suddenly, when the Gulf came along, or, uh, and in my case, after the Gulf um, had come along, um, there was a need. And so everybody was then qualified in air to air refueling. So uh, for me, I've been there for five years, come back to it, and then had to learn how to do this uh, rather bizarre thing, which um, again gave you, because it's pure piloting skill really and luck um it gave you a real sense of satisfaction when, when you could do it when you slipped in behind tanker and popped to the the, 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 the see the green light coming think very much dude that's me i'm the boy <laughs> i remember doing it actually on the tri stars a dreadful tanker it was awful um it was a massive great because it used to swing around all over the shop and i remember watching my um and i tried to learn on that actually and that, which is why another reason i found it very difficult i think um but i my mate was having a go and eventually um I was yeah, getting impatient as you do. Uh, out of the way, I mind my turn. So I just slotted in behind the tanker, plonked straight in. And the next thing was a call from the uh, from the tanker captain saying, You are not cleared to join. <laughs> Leave immediately. Go home. <laughs> so I snuck off in my tail between my legs. <laughs> wow. So as you've been cocky, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so for, for anybody who's not familiar with that, so it's a hose and probe um, yeah. method rather than the um, sort of more, well, it's not more common, but uh, perhaps the better known American system. Of the a, American system. Well, the American Air Force system, because, of course, the U.S. Navy, Navy. and U.S. Marine Corps yeah. both use probe and drogue. The, the yeah. peculiar thing about the tornado was that the probe um, came out from, so it it, it, it sat sort of next to um on the when it's retracted to, to the right of the, of the front cockpit, but when it extended, it extended out and back. So the probe was actually, I don't know, four feet out to your right, just outside your peripheral vision. So you had to approach this basket, and the basket came towards you. As it got close to the aeroplane, to the tornado, it got the sort of bow wave off, off the canopy, so it then fly up and out. So you had to sort of time it such that it flew up and out at the same time as your probe. You had to kind of offset it uh, for this pro- thing that you couldn't see happening. So you had to. It was a certain amount of of guesswork initially, but um, but but again, as you got used to it, you kind of knew how much to you know where, where to put it and then drive in, and the thing would just go dunk straight on. Um, Most people would probably have seen the videos of um, those uh, baskets breaking off with the yeah. on on the probe. What causes that? If you, um, the, the two sort of, ideally you, you come in at about, I don't know, it's about three or four knots impact, which then, because the, the, in the centre of the um, of the probe, there are locking jaws, sorry, in the centre of the basket. So the sort of veins are there really to stabilise the, um, the, the, the basket, is there to stabilise the, the, the end of the hose. Um, they also act slightly as guidance, but then they're, they're not strong. They're, they're, they're sort of thin strips of aluminium, so I don't know about that. Um, this sort of um, size, and they're just designed to to to, to make the um, you know like a shuttlecock really. Um, in fact, exactly like a shuttlecock. So the the, the 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 middle bit flies through the air. Mm. Um, so if you hit it at about four miles an hour, you'll you won't break the um, uh, you know, you won't break those um, pro uh, sorry the, 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 those struts. And if you bounce off them, they'll just click you into, and you'll still have enough of to go clank, and the and, and then the, the the locking mechanism will lock you in. 
So then you've got the um, the hoses now locked onto your probe. If you don't go hard enough, if, if you're going slower than that, then you'll just hit and you'll just bounce out of the probe because the locking jaws won't, won't, won't match. But if you go faster than that, then if you do contact one of those um, struts, you'll just your probe will just go straight through them. So that they'll just bend out of the way and, and you'll end up. So you've now got your shuttlecock with your probe sort of like a fist going through it. And of course, when you try and come back, it just pulls it off. The whole thing comes off because there's a frangible end on the hose to make sure that you don't break. I mean, that said, it can, it, the other, there are frangible ends at both ends. So it could, it, either end might break. So you might end up losing the end of your probe, which is if it's jammed in, or you might just break the, um, you know, the, 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 um, the basket off. So um, that's basically what that is, is, is actually hit, hitting the thing too fast and or off center. You can also, have, I've seen, sort of send a ripple up the hose that then oh, yes, comes yeah. back and sort of whiplashes. Um, well, that's right. Yes. Yeah, it, it does indeed. Um, and you, you, yeah, you end up with the ripple. So if you see it coming, it's uh, yeah, to come back quickly to try and strengthen, you know, lengthen the hose out before it to, before it ripples. And, uh, and and I think that, that was one of the things that tend to take, I think the, 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 the spokes thing would, would, quite possibly take the um the basket off whereas the ripple would probably take the end of your uh, your probe off um, but of course if you did the other thing of course if, if, if you if you spoke then one of one of those um um, um the word's gone for me but the yeah the the, the little bits of um, a metal might actually end up get breaking off and going down your engine so that was because because again the probe sat right in front of the or just above the the engine intake um but uh, just going back on actually we talked about the engine and, and how much oomph it had so you you plug into the tanker with, uh, in dry power. As you filled up, the airplane would get heavier and start sort of sinking and getting more draggy. Of course, the tanker carried on because it's getting lighter anyway by a bit, but it had, it had so much excess thrust because it was designed to be there. And so what you then you got to the stage where you started backing out of, 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 you know, of, of the pod because the other thing you had to do, once you'd made contact, you then had to drive the hose in. There was a marker. Once you drove the marker part into back into the pod again, then fuel would flow. And as you came back out again, it would stop. So you suddenly see the hose coming out again, and you've got full power on. So you know that you're running out of power. So next thing is you have to go into reheat. So you're then now going into. I think it was on the, the left engine because the no, it's the right engine because because the, the the drag was on the right. So you go into min reheat on the right engine. Of course, that would light up and push you forwards quite quickly. So you have to come back to almost idle in the left and then back up again before it's a, so you then juggle it. So then you've got the right engine in min reheat, burning fuel like it's going out of fashion, and you're keeping in with the left and hoping that there's more fuel coming down the hose and it's going out the back of the of the airplane and the uh, through through the right hand burner. So, uh, did, you, did, you, did you know that? I mean, would you, because I don't know about the tornado, but is, are there fuel burn uh, and fuel quantity gauges in the back seat? Could the, would the nav be um, telling you what was going on in that respect? He, he could look over actually and see, um, the, uh, see what was there. But again, he had a totalizer. So he'd okay. see from the totalizer the thing, that things were going up, really. So if, if so it was going up, then yeah. it was good. Basically, well, yes, yeah. <clears throat> was was there general irreverence coming from the back seat during all of this? Would you get some um, sort of snarky, um, sort of but well-intentioned comments about your flying? Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. In fact, that was all the time anyway. But yeah, particularly thanking <laughs> yeah. there would be uh, rude comments. And uh, <laughs> again, if you did it well, they they, they might even say, "No, oh, that's all right." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's all right. Yeah, lucky day today, is it? <laughs> um, what was it like doing that at night? Um, in a way, it was a bit easier because there was there there was less to distract you. Um, the the airplane, the underside of the tanker was lit up um, relatively brightly, so you had this sort of lit lit underside, but you didn't see the rest of it. Which you know, again, seeing a great big tailplane towering over you, or in the case of a Victor or, or big engine pods on a on a VC10, would be quite sort of uh, quite intimidating. Um, 
and then the 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 um, the the pod itself had the light system on it and 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 and, and was was dimly lit so you could see the the traffic light system which uh, cleared you on told you that fuel was flowing all that kind of stuff um, and then there was a ring of little lights all the way around the basket so you'd see this sort of um, you you you'd see you could make out the underside of the of the wing of the tanker then you could see where the pod was with the sort of traffic light system and then you'd see this sort of circular faint circular um, you know, sort of um, shape just sort of floating around in front of it like that and that's there you sort of line up and uh, then you went and uh, yeah it was it, it 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 was in many ways more straightforward because for that reason i, I mean also i don't know i was a massive over generality here but you know at night time sometimes it's sort of calmer wind conditions less turbulence so uh, easier Easier to get spatially disoriented. No, e- easier to get into the. I mean, things bouncing up but, and down. No, but I mean, was, was it was it easier to? Sorry, I I, I put that yeah. as though I'm. I was asking. Yeah, no, but I meant, would it be? Would it was it easier to get spatial disorientation at night than in on the tanker? Because um, presumably, um, if you went through through weather, that would become a a possibility. Yeah, well, again, in many ways, you're you've got this um, reference. Which doesn't change. I mean, okay, if you go through weather, it, it moves up and down, or it, you know, a bit of cloud comes in between. But but basically, your reference is solely the bit of the underside of the tanker. You can see the pod, and you know, once you're connected, you can't even see the lights of the basket. So that so that's all there. So it's just you're literally just flying formation on on this bit that you can see. So almost anything can happen. I mean, I think there's a uh, there's certainly um, an opportunity to get disorientated. You come off the tanker from this very sort of straightforward, you know, ev- lights and everything, you know proportioned and um uh, and where it should be as you come and then turn into complete darkness or maybe lights you know lights on the ground and the, and the aircraft above so it looks like you've got stars beneath you and it's you know and all that kind of stuff yeah great opportunity to get disorientated but um but while you're on the tanker itself no not really i think it was um yeah but re- really sort of uh, naturally um reasonably straightforward we we are I'm, I have in my mind talk about wing sweep again. So oh, I'm yes. not forgetting about it. I'm coming. I'm coming back to. I'm just going the long way around, um, and just sort of going with the questions yeah. as they come into my mind. But of course, we're talking about the night, um, sort of operating mm-hmm. at night. Um, you know, the tornado had an all weather, um, any time of day capability, but you had no um, until the GR four came along. I think there was no. Um, infrared or um FLIR system to project an image into your heads-up display nothing at all no no um, <clears throat> were you using night goggles uh, night vision goggles at the time no I, I didn't i think so i think probably in the mid 90s so from yeah i think probably i mean i i last flew the airplane in 94 so i think 95 96 some some goggles were brought in i think um but no, we didn't. Um, we didn't use them at all. It's, it's all our non-visual stuff was radar. So uh, going to, the, I mean, you to go to the tanker, you might fly a sort of night, a, sort of you couldn't fly close formation at night in the because the lights weren't good enough. But you could you could fly sort of tactical formation. So you fly a sort of loose tactical formation on, on um, to, to out to the tanker. The the, the um, tanker you get to either through uh, radar control, GTI control, or and or by the navigator using his mapping radar. Um, sort of abusing it as a, as a, as a sort of air-to-air pulse radar, so he you know, could talk you down. We also had an air-to-air TACAM, so the idea was that the two, uh, you and the tanker, would fly towards each other, and at a range, and I can't remember what it was now, it's probably at 16 miles, the tanker would start a left-hand turn. And then the idea was that in that, the time that it took for it to complete that turn was the time that it took you to cover that ground. So basically what should happen is at the right range, that it counted down, which we got from air-to-air TACAM, um, 
the tanker would turn and you carry on and then you'd, you'd end up sort of almost beneath it. And then it's just a matter of joining up on the wing. And then once you joined on the wing, then we're into, you know, lights and everything. Um, and, and then visually moving into, into tank and then coming off. And then if we're going to go low level at that stage, we probably maybe start off in a tactical formation. But then, as I mentioned um, last time we spoke, we each had our own route. So you then both split as you, as you, you know, flew out to your own the start point for your own route and your buddy would do the same thing. I mean, his, his route would be two miles of rest yours, but that's where you, and then you'd fly the route on the radar using the t- terrain following radar. <clears throat> so and so what, was it like, what was it like operating the aeroplane then at low level? You, you said the first time you did that sort of um, pop-up um, recovery, it's quite interesting doing that at night, but generally what was it like flying um, in an environment where you really couldn't see anything. Because um, I, I remember reading in your book, and I don't know if it's the one you've got behind you, the, the tornado oh, yeah. uh, over, the, over Tigris, <laughs> which is a fantastic book. I mean, seriously, everyone, anyone listening to this, if they want to read two really, really good books on what it's like to be a fast jet pilot um, and flying the tornado, then those are two great books to read. Um, that's a sincere recommendation. But But in one of them, I think you say... You know, you're flying at night, and I think you said you turn down the lighting on the instruments because there's there's less for you to do, or there's there's not so much focus on the instruments. Um, well, that's right. The, the focus at nighttime when you're well, the, either in the medium level transit, yes, you don't really need to see an awful lot. Really, so you just turn everything down. You, you've got the, as long as the HUD, you can see that you've got all the instruments you need there. Just need to be able to look in occasionally, check the engine instruments and, and, and the fuel um, that the fuel's feeding. But other than that, really, there's no there's no particular need to look in. Um, so yeah, you try and turn the lights down. The problem with the tornado was that the lights weren't particularly good. So you could, if if the HUD was could be turned down low enough at night time, it meant that it probably only turned up to full brightness. It wasn't bright enough for daytime. So there's a bit of a trade off. <laughs> and and I remember flying one when we'd they'd we'd mentioned that I mentioned the bigger tanks which were introduced after the Gulf War for us, the twenty two fifty tanks. They were so big that you couldn't sweep the wings all the way back. So there was another detent at sixty three degrees. I think it was. So the sixty three degree there was a. Uh, it was a push button, I think, which could toggle you bet- between um, stopping the wings at 63. And the, but that was a really bright light that hadn't been done. So I remember turning all the lights down. This is mass like a searchlight <laughs> coming out. I, had to, I think I had to cut off a bit, of, pull a bit of paper and, and, and you know, cut it and put it on top of it. So, but, and at, but when you're at low level, um, your interests, again, were, were a little bit more. In, and you were looking at the HUD mainly. But as I mentioned last time, looking at the e-scope, so, so your scans going from the... E-scope, or let's say from the HUD to the E-scope to the HUD to the um, terrain following radar control. And that was um, when I started flying, it was down here. So you'd be looking down and you're looking to check that the, I think there were, I can't remember, three green. No, you had to have the autopilot engaged. I can't remember if the light was down there, but you needed the TFR on um, the um, and something else. So there, there were three lights you had to check. That, <clears throat> later they moved the... Um, uh, so in the sort of late 80s, they, they, they moved the terrain following radar controls to just up by the, um, just next to the HUD on, on the combing. So you, look, you just had to look across. So you're looking HUD across and then down sort of in this sort of triangular um, or sort of tick type um, scan. Um, so, and really, again, apart from wanting to look every now and then, just check the instruments, engine instruments mm-hmm. are okay. Uh, and critically, the fuel was feeding. Um, you didn't really have much need to, to look into anything else, really. So it really was kind of at night it was heads out even though you couldn't probably see an awful lot in terms of where other airplanes were um, Let, let's let's talk about wing sweep then so yeah you, you know you got up to 67 degrees of, of of sweep what happens when they won't come back forwards again well let me tell you a story <laughs> yeah well I, I i didn't one of the things that we used to do on our um instrument approaches and um our, our, sorry instrument rating 
Um, and so we had to do, I think, about three or four every year or every six months. And when we did our annual instrument rating, we also had to do one then, was a swept wing approach. And um, we used to do it at 67 wing. Um, and so you flew around the pattern faster than normal. So normally you fly around um, for a normal approach, you fly around the, the, the pattern about 250 knots. And then on the on the base leg, um, you start slowing down. So you get to uh, about sort of... Um, Two, 210 knots, I suppose, at the top of drop, and then you come down the slope at about 180 knots, something like that, in 25 wing with um, with, with full flap. One thing we haven't spoken about is uh, is flaps. There were once you moved the wing out of 25 wing, there was no flap at the back of the wing. There were slats between um, at full slat at 25 wing. Once you came back, there was a maneuver um, position which went to 45, and then then you couldn't use it. So the so you so if your wings are stuck back, then you're probably going to fly with with no flaps. So the speeds need to be higher. So the pattern's are at 300 knots, and you come steaming in at 300 knots. I think you got the gear speed gear lowering suppose 235. So you had to get down to about 230 odd knots on that on the base as you came around, so that at the top of the descent you pop the gear down. So and in terms of speeds, it, you actually flew on on Anglo Attack Alpha, and I think for. For, 20, for 67 wing, you flew at 16 or 17 alpha. So the nose is actually quite high. So it's like a delta wing. You're flying with the nose quite high. Um, you've just got yourself down below 230 knots so you can get pop the gear down. So you've now got the gear down and nothing else, and you're going rattling down with an approach speed somewhere about 215 or 220 knots, so really quite fast. Um, and you do that, and at 200 feet, you then initiate a, a go around. So reheat, climb away, gear up, and then, you know, okay, good enough wings forward and you practiced it ticking the box go off and do the, the next exercise so it was something that we practiced quite a lot in you know each year so we, let's say we've done the four we've done it, so that's five that you've done in the year so you, you know it's, it's fairly straightforward so um my particular experience was um going over to um the um area just north of newcastle and northumberland we we're using that quite a lot this was um after, so we're talking into the early 90s now um, no low flying in Germany. We go low flying in the UK. We tend to do high to low. So we'll go um, high level, drop down near Amble or something like that, pop in, we'll do some low flying around, and then we'll go into... We had um, ground crew based at Lucas in Scotland. So we'd fly a route. We'd probably end up at Lucas, have a lunch, and then do reverse, a low level, and then back. And this particular one was, I think it was a pair, were going off, and I was the number three. I was going off to bounce them. So I go off with my mate Cookie, who I've flown with on my first tour, my my third tour, my and so we're on our fourth tour together. We're mates, so he's still good mates of mine now, and um, and we're having a, a bit of a hoot. We're off, we go, and we're waiting for the other pair to come into low level. We're down at uh, down to the past um, uh, Amble or somewhere in yeah, in Northumberland, and we're scooting on. What we're going to do is we're going to go on low level, sneaking along, looking over the hills so that they can't see us. And as they come past, we're going to pop out of the hills, sort of in this sort of massive climb, big wing over, zap down, and uh, and give them what for. So um, this is all planned, and uh, you know, lo and behold, the cookie calls down time. I look out and I see these two trails of smoke coming towards us. Excellent, these are the boys, and we pull up, and um, you know they see us, which is the idea of it. Really, it's a training thing, so we want them to see us and react, and they react. And the next thing I see is I, I've got into re. I'm pulling, and they're still disappearing off. I think this is a bit strange. And the airplane's sort of wallowing around and Cookie shouts at me, wings. And I went, yeah, I know I've got them and I've got the lever all the way fully forward. So let's show it forward again and make sure the maneuver, um, maneuver flaps down, which is on the throttle. But the thing's still wallowing around and Cookie still shouts at me, wings. <laughs> I thought, what are you on about? And, and I, said, I said, I've got them. They're in 25. He said, have you looked out the window? And of course, I look 
because behind me, and I can see the wings are actually stuck back at 45 where we'd lost them. So we're now quite slow wallowing around with these things in 45. So it's apparent. So I pull the lever back to 45, I'll push it forward again, nothing happens, they're stuck. So I say, right, why don't we just, we're not just on the head, obviously, um, tell the team that we're going home and why don't we just go back to Germany? To which Cookie said, well, it's probably a hydraulic problem. So I don't, perhaps you don't want to do that, have, you know, there's hydraulic fluids and peeing all over the airplane, catch fire. So why don't we go somewhere else? Hint, hint. So I said, okay, let's do that. And we'll go into, we'll go into uh, Leeming. So, and it's one of those days where it's a lovely, beautiful, clear day, much like today is at the moment, actually. And so we've got all this fuel on board. So we've got yeah, 2250 tanks pretty much full because I can't remember if we, no, we haven't tanked, but we used a bit sort of coming over. We've been conserving our fuel so we could burn it off at low level. So in order to get a reasonable approach speed, because the approach speed is dependent on the weight of the airplane, we 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 have to get rid of you know, several tons of, <laughs> of fuel. So we cruise around the uh, the Yorkshire Dales, pumping out fuel all over them. And I, got, I mean, it's, it it all it evaporates, so it never actually reaches. Yeah. This is quite spectacular. It's a great sort of white plume coming out the back of the airplane. Um, but was, and and then we start our way in uh, with the wings fully back, not fully back. Sorry, in in forty five, so swept back. So again, it's the I've normally done it in 67 wing, 45 wing. Well, that's a little bit easier because it's not swept all the way back. So things are a bit more responsive. But And the speed's not quite as high. I think instead of, I think in, instead of, you know, 215, 220, we're looking at about sort of 205, 210 knot approach speed. But even so, if you think we normally land at 160, that's 45 knots faster. And you're touching down at over 200 miles an hour, which would be quite fast. So so we start down the slope. And um, <clears throat> I've practiced it that many times. It's it's a piece of old ease, actually. You get the thing in, in the groove, you put it put the alpha on. I can't remember it's about 15 alpha it had to be, so it's uh, locked at 15 alpha going down nicely. But the thing is that every time I've done it, I've always at 200 feet gone around. So I get to 200 feet, and up to now, I haven't really, you know, it's been very low arousal because I know what I'm doing and I've done it in, you know, that many times, and I think, yeah, no problem at all. And suddenly at 199 feet, I think, I've never done this before. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course that's where it all gets really exciting because the things that you haven't thought of um uh, you know firstly t- the t- what's the what's the touching attitude going to look like you know if i flare what's going to happen Do, are we going to go bouncing are we going to get airborne again um how are we going to stop um uh all the, you know if, if we're going to need the hook where do i drop the hook do i drop the hook at the beginning or if i do that it drags along the runway then it'll probably be worn out uh if i use reverse thrust which I want to use to kill some of the speed. But if I drop the hook with reverse thrust, is that going to uh, make the hook sort of deflect one or the other and, and actually perhaps so it may, may not work? All these things, which suddenly in the ne- last sort of few seconds of, uh, of flight, we suddenly have to very quickly have a discussion about. <laughs> and yeah, we, uh, I mean, I, I touched down quite gently. So so we did actually, I think we, so we, we skipped a bit. So we're kind of now halfway down the runway, still doing uh, 200 plus knots, hurtling down, quick bit of reverse thrust and of course the next thing is is um i'm so busy doing that that you know the thought of putting the hook down hasn't so cookie shout at me hook hook and of course yeah cancel the reverse hit the hook and then we go over the the, the, the cable at the far end and of course then sort of brought up to a fairly close um you know a, a stop fairly quickly fairly abruptly um and then the airplane starts going backwards as it's a, but, but yeah it, it comes to halt and uh, it, it's all very very exciting in that last bit because it's those bits that you as ever bits you practice Whatever the emergency, however dire it is, if you practiced it, it actually becomes it becomes a drill. It becomes straightforward. It, it, it's you're mm. quite comfortable. But the bit that you're not comfortable with every time is the bit you haven't practiced, you haven't thought of. And, yeah. and I guess that's why you know we, we. I think that's why we were very good in general at 
in, on sort of operations and things because we practice most things. We, you know, the Air Force used to practice and practice and practice. And you know, and anybody who, who thinks you can't do that, and I, I do worry these days. So we're going off, off piece here, but you know, but people are saying, oh, we you know, do things in the simulator and life, but it's not the same. And and, and you, you know. You, you do have to fly a lot. You do have to practice a lot in order to be competent, both in flying the airplane and, and particularly in fighting the airplane as well. Um, but yeah, that's 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 wing sweep. You know, big, big eyes when you hit the ground at two hundred miles an hour, and you're going, "Oh, I'm moving. How am I going to stop?" <laughs> did that did that result in uh, any any of the sort of guidance or the books being, uh, you know, the pilot's notes or whatever you call them in the RAF being updated? Um... Not not that I'm aware of. Um, in that, I did. I did write an account of it for for the, the air clues was, was the I think it still is it's a RF magazine with sort of flight safety thing people could write there. I learned about flying from that story, you know how they embarrass themselves, half kill themselves, or learnt something, or learnt something in both those cases, and yeah, or just learnt something. <clears throat> but but I think it's one of, and, and again this is another kind of off piece moment really is is one of the things what was that we in the crew room people sat down and had a cup of coffee or, or in the bar people went to and had a beer and chatted about flying and oh you never guess what happened to me today type things and that's how stories got around and how people learnt a lot of things uh, so i wouldn't quite say folklore but you, i mean you can write stuff down but really until you've heard someone with sort of big wide eyes and a sort of you know pale face and shaking hand of the a beer or a, or a mug of tea in his hand that's you know that that's really when 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 things register and um you know i think that if we Again, in, in, in the Air Force of today, um, you know, if people can't sit around a crew and talk about flying or can't go to the bar and, uh, and share their experiences, then, then I think that an awful lot is lost. Um, but but no, 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 I don't think anything was, uh, w- was particularly added. And probably because, because perhaps people kind of more intelligent than I kind of knew, knew that or thought about it a bit or whatever. Um, well, I was going to ask about when you were talking about doing the practice approaches, I was going to ask yeah. whether you were anticipating hot breaks or anything like that. So I guess, um, you know, it's, it sounds like maybe the, you know, the, the documents that would typically talk you through the process. I mean, did they cover those things? Did they, was it, well, was it the case that actually it was, it was documented, but you had never practiced it or read those documents or was it the case that they just weren't documented because people thought them, I think they're probably. I mean, things I mentioned. You mentioned hot breaks. I mean, one of the things that the tornado was <clears throat> was pretty good at was stopping. In that you had reverse thrust, which most fast airplanes didn't have. Um, it ha- also had a hook as well, and again, that's the last resort was you know to, to use that to stop. So the brakes were the brakes weren't desperately effective. Although I think they're more effective than some airplanes. Um, but I don't recall ever having a problem with with hot brakes. And in fact, I think only a couple of people I was aware of did, and they were both. They were flying instructors who should have known better, really. <laughs> um, and I don't know what they were doing to do that. But, it, but it, I wasn't aware ever of having a problem with hot brakes. And, and again, stopping the airplane. Um, again, what, if you use the facilities available to you, and on one occasion uh, I didn't, and I did go off the end of the runway. Um, but um, there, there was also, apart from a, um, a cable across the end of the runway, you can actually hook, there was also a barrier that would come up and you could you could go into that. So I mean, that's, those are sort of different, different ways of, of stopping an airplane. So... Yeah, that, I think it was just thought that you would you would use one of those ways of stopping an airplane in an emergency. I mean, there were other, there were other reasons to use cables and barriers and things. You know, if you had nose or steering failure, which happened a fair amount, um, so it wasn't entirely unheard of to do that. So again, I think the assumption was that yeah, you would land and you would avail yourself of whatever facilities were were there. Um, there, there, there. There probably was a note somewhere in the um, in the the flying manual saying you know. 
these are these are things that you know these things you need to think about but then probably wouldn't wouldn't have said more because again you, you don't know i mean if i was, I was landing at you know, 200 plus knots on a day with not much wind but if i'd been landing into a 40 knot headwind it probably would have been a bit of a non-event really so you know it, it depends on the day it depends on the conditions really uh, this is a, a bit of a, an odd question um but was it your book uh the operational history of the tornado where you talked about somebody in the crew room um, sitting down reading a magazine or something and some an instructor came in and said if you've got time to be reading that you should be reading the um flight manual or whatever and and then yeah, and then he and then he challenges him on the wing sweep limitations at a certain speed with cert, with a certain configuration and he gets it right and then he quizzes, quizzes the guy who's told him he shouldn't be reading the magazine and he gets it wrong is it, was that your book? That's no, that's not. I don't think that's me. Actually, I, I don't recall that. But um, okay. yeah, I think uh, I think we were regarded as being quite professional, and, and I think it was generally reckoned that people could, as long as you did read around the subject, yeah, you would have you would have days off, as it were, reading a, a magazine. <clears throat> Again, most of the magazines in the crew room were probably um, you know sort of uh, flight safety type mags, so you'd probably be reading some accident report or something. Um, I, d- I mean, I do remember somebody coming in saying, "Well, you know, why don't why don't you go into the um, you know, in, in, into the um, safe area and, and and read some of the secret documents, which I didn't know existed." I said, "I didn't know there." So, "Well, come with me. I'll show you." And so, and, and there was quite. I mean, that was another thing about crew room culture was there was an awful lot of people. The older hands leading the younger hands on, as it were. You know, so if you don't know something, well, let's, you know, I'll show you, um, sort of thing. And and, and you, I think you do need to have space and time to do that, really, and the opportunity to, to you know, for, for people to experience to, to let that seep through, to, to use it to show other people how things are, not just in in in, air, in the air, but also you know, sort of around and about, you know, how how you know what what's available because it's sort of the things of. Uh, Old um, Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns, isn't it? If you don't know that these books exist, then how are you ever going to you know, how are you ever going to know to look for them? So uh, yeah, you um, mentioned sort of fifteen minutes ago uh, about not really sort of caring what other wings were doing, um, mm. not caring really too, too much what Moran was doing. The not invented here uh, approach to things, uh, as you mentioned in the last interview, I'd, I'd uh, spoken to Adam Robinson about his experiences yeah. in the Gulf War, and he said they didn't really talk too much to the other wings in, in regards to what they were doing they, they all had slightly different philosophies around when to fly and how to fly and how to attack a target and so on can you talk a little bit about then the culture um that was um apparent in in the crew room at that time because uh, you've also mentioned a little bit about you know if you can't go to the bar and have a have a drink well you know if, if you're a non-drinker that's fine have a cup of tea whatever but if you can't do that um then it's difficult to share that that knowledge and pass it on do, do I get the sense that you feel things are changing? You, you talked last time about your son going through RAF, the RAF yeah. at the moment. Um, do you think it's a very different RAF? Oh, yeah, it's almost unrecognisable. Um, I, I mean, I'm, my, my knowledge is both what he tells me, and I compare it to my experiences, but also I'm doing a little bit of flying for the uh, one of the experience flights at the moment, so I do see a bit of what goes on. And it is, it's, a very, it's a very different world. Um, I think that one would argue that you know th- things move on and um you know i'm a dinosaur which i undoubtedly am that's a blissfully incorrect dinosaur um so my way of th- doing things you know, it, in, in a very different world than it was you know sort of um 30 40 years ago but i think there are certain things which uh, which i kind of alluded to already really are, are really very very important and, and i i think that I, i'm not convinced that, that that today's air force has that um that ethos shall we say, around, particularly around a squadron, because, I mean, a squadron was um, was very much a team. Um, we were herd animals. 
Um, the I mean, the squadron wasn't just the aircrew. In fact, it mainly wasn't the aircrew. Actually, so I think you know, I think we had about forty-five officers, um, of which you know 43, 40, uh, Well, no, probably about forty were were aircrew. Um, an admin officer, um, intelligence officer, a, a, a two or three engineering officers. Um, the rest were NCO ground crew um, of mainly engineers, but you know some some admin, some safety equipment people, and the rest of it. And actually, they they were really the squadron because you know we used to come in and out, and the, and, and they'd stay with the squadron. Um, and you know, indeed, they were the ones that you know they, they weren't our, they were much, very much their aeroplanes that they let us play with every now and then. So uh, there was. Um, I think it depends on the squadron. Really. I think the squadrons that I was on, there, there, there was always a bit of an us and them, which there would be simply because a, well, the jobs are different, and b, the work patterns different. I.e., if I'm flying an airplane, then an engineer can't be fixing it, and similarly, if he's fixing it, I can't be flying it. So we're kind of always working completely out of phase with each other, just meeting up at the the interaction. I.e., where's my airplane? <clears throat> help me get in it. Help me get out. Here's your airplane. Go bye bye. Go fix it. I'm going for a, for a cup of coffee. Um, so. But nevertheless, we you know there, there were occasions of uh, you know, where we all got together and detachments and that, and and we all you know we we all respected each other professionally, and um, you know we, we didn't live in each other's pockets, but we kind of looked, looked out for each other, as it were. Um, within the, the the air crew environment, though, we we did very much live in each other's pockets, actually, and and we were very much herd animals, and um, we you know it was like a pack of of, of wild dogs or whatever, you know. Going around, you know, we we were very politically incorrect. It was, um, I have to say, um, a culture that revolved around drinking too much beer um, at weekends, and a culture that involved around flying hard and debriefing hard. Um, you know, a, a, a culture that um, where you did you know, take the mickey out of people in, uh, in in quite an uncharitable way quite often, but you gave as good as you got and. You knew that the people who were doing that, taking the mickey out of you, were in that sort of Great British way, only doing it only because they liked you, as it were, that they wouldn't take the mickey out of you if they thought you were a prat. So, um, and again, it was kind of everybody looking out for each other. Um, you know, if you were on in, for, you know, if, if the squadron was going to detachment and there was, you know, A flight and B flight, then if you were on A flight, you hated B flight. If you were together somewhere, then a different squadron, then A flight and B flight liked each other, but hated whatever squadron it was. <laughs> you know, if we went out somewhere with another squadron and uh, you know the the that's, you know, another air force was there, we liked each other and hated the other. Air, you know, it's that kind of thing of, of expanding. You know, it's a bit like you know if you, you know, if you're English, you support the England team against Scotland, but if you're you know if you're English, then you'll support the Lions against the French and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we were very much team. Um, players we very much we socialized with each other we tended to, i mean i was on it's bizarre for me i arrived on 14 squadron out in at bruggen when, when it was forming and after two years i was posted to 31 squadron and so i arrived so i had these close friends and socialized all the time with people on 14 and then suddenly almost overnight my my whole life changed and i felt a stranger if i went to 14 squadron i my, I socialised with the guys from Thirty One Squadron, you know, and my whole life became around that. And so th- those sort of allegiances, um, uh, you know, w- worked that way. That we, um, but the result was, of course, that whenever you went away on a detachment, or if you went, um, if, if you flew together, you kind of knew each other really well, and you knew each, what people were good at, what they were not so good at, and you would try and anticipate their needs, um, you know, one way or the other. Um, 
and they would do the same for you. So the result was that you had a team that worked together very, very well, um, you know, particularly if they're well-led as well. So, so yeah, it, it was it, it was great. I mean, it was it, it was it, it was all male. It, it was that kind of um, dog eat dog environment. So it's quite macho in many respects. Um, but it was not a non-caring environment. Um, uh, and you know, it, it, it was it was a great place to be. You know, as, as a young guy, it was it was it was brilliant. It was good fun um, and very rewarding, professionally rewarding, um, as well as being a great environment. What, what sense do you get then uh, of things that have changed then? So you're, in the interactions you have had and, and presumably the network of contacts you maintain? One of the, I mean, um, I think that, um, so one of the things that, particularly in the Cold War, was we were very, very focused. We knew exactly what we were doing. We, we mentioned last time we spoke about the nuclear operations, we spoke about the, um, the conventional um, anti-airfield operations, we talked about all the exercises that went on, we knew exactly what's, what we were there for, we knew there was a massive sense of purpose, and there, there was a whole, you know, Bruggen, four squadrons of, of tornadoes, in RF Germany, um, eight squadrons of tornadoes, two of Harriers, two of Phantoms, so yeah, two of, um, you know, plus helicopter squadrons, this, this great force that was there with a very, very firm idea of, of what it was trying to achieve and how it was going to do it. Um, and particularly in Germany, less so in the UK, because we were kind of in a foreign country, um, our, we socialised around ourselves. You know, people didn't buy a house. You didn't buy a house in Germany or, you know, whatever, and, and commute. Uh, you know, so people were there on base, so people were there together. So you had this very sort of massive feeling of, of, of belonging um, and of, of uh, a sense of purpose. And I think... The, the certainly the sense of purpose I'm not sure is there anymore, but 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 I think nobody quite knows what's going on these days in in, in the world. I mean, okay, there've been operations in um, uh, over uh, Iraq and and boosted that to Afghanistan, but none of it's you know in this country. I mean, people even in the 80s were aware of the Cold War. But, you know, mm. What I don't know, it's it's very, it's, a bit, it's a bit nebulous really. And what exactly are you trying to achieve? It's not like you're trying to stop the Russian hordes coming over and uh, you know and uh, you know breaking a mummer and that kind of stuff, is it? Mm. So there's there's this massive difference. The um, the other difference is that people are, I think, away a lot on the operational side of things, which means you don't have that same sort of at home. You don't get that sense of, of, of belonging in the same way. Um, so, so again, that sense of purpose, sense of belonging, um, I think, isn't there. And because, again, people are quite thinly spread on the ground, I suspect that they sit in the crew room with a cup of coffee and chewing the fat probably doesn't happen as often as it did or, or it should do. Um, so I think that, that those are those are three obvious things that spring to me. Um, the other, I mean, I mentioned that we, that we were um, an all male environment pretty much in, on the aircrew side of it, and that's changed. I think, well, undoubtedly for the better. But um, on that theme, I think that the, the Air Force, it strikes me, has become almost an organisation which is which exists to be diverse, <laughs> if you know what I mean, rather than a, an, an organisation. I think it's true of most of the armed forces, rather than an organisation which um, which exists to um, to use violent force to um, to, to, to get to, to enable the the, the the wishes of the country to, to occur, you know that that that's I mean that that's what it, I mean the, the services are there to unleash violent force upon people in order to get the, the political will of the country done, whatever that might be. 
Uh, they're not really there for anything else. But we're, we're, we're drifting a long way now, aren't we? Too. <laughs> That's okay. No, I mean, I, I, I asked this question in quite a few of my interviews, um, mostly because I'm, I'm talking to sort of older older people who've left mm. the service and now don't feel constrained in, in sharing their opinions. So yeah. you, you tend to get a, a less varnished picture. Um, I mean, yeah, I did see recently that the RAF have hired a diversity chief. Um, and I did see somebody once say, um, they, you know, the the armed forces should reflect the public that they serve, and I I feel that that's not true at all. I think the armed forces should reflect the most capable uh, mm. lethal fighting machine that you can assemble to to do your bidding for you. When exactly you need that, to. yeah. And indeed, it never has. I think the only time it almost represented the country is probably in the First World War during the um, conscription in the sort of latter days of the First World War. Mm. Um, but I think I don't think it ever has ever did pre- certainly never did previously, and I don't think it really ever has since. But you're right, ex- exactly that. I mean, you know, I, I think we're all. I mean, the thing about you know, diversity and, and whatever is is that it was kind of very much welcomed. You know, people people were seen as individuals with it within the the team, and so that's how diversity, if you like, w- was was celebrated. Um, you know, and and everybody, you know, somebody, everybody had a unique thing about them, and uh, you know, that's what we all. That's what they're known for, or whatever. So you know, I, I think um, you know, I, I undoubtedly feel that um, the introduction of female aircrew has been a, a fantastically beneficial thing. Um, you know, um, not least because in, in my experience of flying with um, female pilots in the airline industry, I think in general, women think slightly different in, in that they are less eager or less prepared to take unnecessary risk, and also they tend to be cooperative rather competitive whereas we did although we did cooperate we were very competitive as well and you need you need to rein that in so i so i think that's a really a fantastic sort of addition to, to to the service but i think that um i i think probably all the things that we mentioned are things which really come from from the leadership at the top both politically and um and in, in the high echelons of, of military um uh, thoughts or, or you know, leadership which which is also probably quite political so so i think that's that's where the question I mean, on a squadron people look after each other whatever and um but I, but I, but I think they do need to have a sense of purpose. <clears throat> not not entirely connected to the the, the question of diversity and, and culture at um, a, a sort of a uh, a unit level. Um, mm. What do you think about the RAF's relevance in the world today? If you think about what it was when you served, um, in terms of volume, in terms of capability, in terms of role, mission, um, and you think and you look at it now again in the same terms and you think about the growth and the aggressive um positioning that china takes um on the world stage a a fairly unapologetic approach it has and the same to some degree with russia um how relevant do you think the RAF is today it's difficult to say um in if you'd so when i joined rf germany in uh, 1985 um as I mentioned, there were what uh, fourteen fast jet squadrons out there. I don't know if you've got fourteen squadron fast jet squadrons at all now, let alone you know mm. deployed elsewhere. Uh, there were ninety three thousand people in the RAF. I think there's now thirty five thousand or something. So it's a third of the size in terms of manpower. I'm not sure in terms of size of of, of combat aircraft. I, I I don't know how many they've got now, um, but it's certainly. I mean, when I was there, it certainly had about I about four hundred and fifty. I think, um, and <clears throat> yes, it, it was a it, it was a powerful force. There again, if in 1985 you'd asked someone who'd been in 
um, to ATAF in 1955, 30 years earlier, they would probably say something, well, of course, it was 200,000 and we had you know, 900 combat aircraft. Um, I suppose the difference is that most of the guys who were um, that I've spoken to, certainly who were out there in the mid-50s, would agree that the aircraft were not particularly capable and also that the general attitude was not necessarily particularly professional. So it's a bit like Flying Club, and there were airplanes that were, you know, two a penny. You could crash left, right, and nobody really cared. And um, you know, they, they weren't that, that capable. So we're using sort of World War II tactics. If you drive us forward to nineteen eighty-five, suddenly we're talking about a very professional air force. We're talking about a very capable one with airplanes, as we've discussed. You know, with a twenty-four-hour day, you know, day-night low-level um, attack capability. Um, similarly, you know, twenty-four-hour day, day-night um, intercept capability from from the, the, the interceptors, the Phantoms, and the, the F threes. Uh, lightnings even at that stage <clears throat> so you know in terms of so although the air force had, had reduced drastically in size between 55 and 85 um it it, it was probably much more effective as, as a fighting force in um in in, in the in the 1980s than it, than it had been in the, in the 1950s if you roll it forward now yeah it's a, a question you know the, the numbers have dropped dramatically um has that drop in numbers being offset by an increase in quality and even so is there an, a, a number below which it doesn't really matter i mean going with chinese particularly and you look at their, their, their tactics in for example in in korea just on the ground for example and, and the russians as well you know their, their tank warfare in the second war you know numbers quality has a, a, a sorry quantity has a quality all of its own and so, you know, if, if you might have the best airplane in the world that's got, you know, far eight missiles, but, you know, if you've got 50 people coming at you, then uh, guess what? You're going to come second. <laughs> and and that that's my my worry. I mean, I, I, I saw those, the two aircraft carriers out, um, Prince of Wales and Queen Elizabeth. And if you think that, that so we've got these two massive great air, aircraft carriers, which are only interoperable with the US Marine Corps, nobody else can operate off them. And we've got one squadron of F-35s that can operate off them. And thinking, well, you know, if you think that in days of the old Art Royal that had a squadron of Buccaneers, a squadron of Phantoms, and you know, a, 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 um, gannets and stuff as well, mm. as, and helicopters, um, it doesn't it doesn't even come close, does it, in terms of capability? Mm. And again, the F thirty five, and I don't know what it, what it will do in terms of range and refuel. But I mean, if you've got an airplane, well, I mean, as as was the case with the Harrier, actually, if you've got an airplane that's got a well, in fact, not with the case of Harrier because the Harrier its its engine worked both ways. But you've got you've got a Carter lift engine around with you. <clears throat> that's fuel space for fuel space for weapons gone you've now got so you've got this massive massive aircraft carrier that costs millions and millions of pounds and you've got to defend it and anything else and you've got an airplane that can't go very very far and can't take very much so mm. i do i do wonder at, at, at its um at its efficiency and i'm sure typhoon's a fantastic machine you know i'd love to have a go myself but um again if you haven't got enough of them <laughs> For what you want to do you know in terms of defending the shores of the uk i think you've probably just about got enough but if you then say well we also want to start operating it somewhere else hmm. um and, and and instead of using just as air defense airplanes we're going to use them as, as ground tech up so we now swing roll so we're now trying to do everything you know quality is going to uh, it is going to drop and, and as i mentioned you know the thing about why we why we were so good in the good old days now one of the reasons that we were good was because we practiced a lot and so we, you know, if you practice a lot, you're good at stuff. If you don't practice, you're not as good. No matter how fancy the kit is that you're flying, you need to, you need to be in practice. And I think those things, you know, less flying, fewer airplanes, trying to do more in that time, not having access to, you know, talking to your mates in the crew room, all those things um, lead to a, a force which 
I don't know. I, don't, I see as being largely irrelevant in the big world. I don't. I don't see. You know, I'm sure the Americans would be grateful if we went to help them to go and fight the Chinese areas. But it'd be like, you know, Korea all over again. You know, sorry, we can't send anybody. We'll send, we can lend you some pilots, or we'll send you, you know, we'll send you ten airplanes out of the, you know, how many thousand you're going to operate. So, in the big picture, I don't think we're I don't, we're not a global player anymore in, in any stretch of the imagination. I don't, I don't believe anyway, and I don't yeah. think the Chinese believe that either. <clears throat> Well, let's talk about something. Let's <laughs> Sad, talk about something. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> More positive. I'm going to slip my wrist now. <laughs> uh, so, so we um, said at the beginning that there were there were sort of two other topics we would discuss. The first yeah. was red flag, and the and the other then would be your experience in in Iraq. Um, I think probably most people listening to this know what red flag is, yeah, but it might, so, yeah. might be interesting to, to hear a little bit about what the workup was from your point of view. Do you, do you just pitch out there or do you spend a few weeks preparing before you, before you arrive? Uh, very much the latter. Um, <clears throat> bearing in mind that, you know, I, I, we did lots of day-to-day flying, but it was all at 250 feet. A lot of the, um, of the flying was um, because people would arrive on a squadron, people would be posted from a squadron, people would say so you'd have guys doing combat-ready workups, You've got, as people leave, formation leaders, four-ship leaders, so now you need to have somebody else to be, to need to become some four-ship leaders, replace him. It's, you know, a, a pilot who was new last year, who's now been a year, needs to become a pairs leader. So there's continuous upgrades and things going on and practices. You've got occasional exercises where you'll send a few guys off to, to, to do army exercise, support those, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but what you don't have is the whole squadron together. What you don't have is um, low flying down at 100 feet, which you have to qualify doing, and you... Certainly initially, we were not allowed to do that all the time. Later on in the 90s, we were allowed to do it routinely just to keep, once, once you qualified, you kept current by doing it every, you know, once every two months, you'd be sent off to go and fly around 100 feet. I refer back to my other conversation about practice. But at, um, <clears throat> at, at, at the sort of in the 80s, the deal was that uh, if, you ha- if you were going to an exercise in America, then you were allowed to work up to or work down to, um, down to 100 feet. And so that would need a syllabus, again, a training syllabus. So what the the, the workout would be two weeks before um, the, the deployments, right? Everybody needs to qualify at Operation Low Flying. So to do that, you need to go off on your own and get get used to it. Then you need to fly as a pair. Then you need to fly as a bounced pair. Then you need to fly as a four ship. Then you so yeah, for, that's so worked up. So we now work you know worked up a stage where we're now doing fight affiliation with four aircraft all flying under feet. Um, and in order to do that, we need to be where the low flying area, ultra operational low flying areas are. First time I did it, we were out in Goose Bay. Great low flying, but rubbish because there were no targets because it is the wilderness out there. There are no airfields, um, army people, rest of it. Um, but you can do what you like. Um, the, the next time I did it, we, we actually went up to, up to Lucas, um, uh, operated out of um, one of the, the Phantom Squadron sites there because a we had uh, we could talk direct to the Phantom Squadrons to organise our affiliation with them to practice fighting them, and also most of the Highlands are a low flying area. The border country uh, is also a low-flying area down to 100 feet, of Spade Adam range, electronic warfare range. So we could practice all those things. So, you know, you, you go off on a really quite demanding source, you, you know, off to do uh, to do two lots of operational low-flying, to go through the electronic warfare range to practice our warfare tactics, through the fighter cap to practice our um, air-to-air stuff, perhaps um, a, a first-pass run at, um, at one of the ranges in Scotland, or Tain or Rose Hearty, 
um, and probably a couple of, um, of, of field targets. You know, the, 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 but we used to have the same army officer called the ground liaison officer, the GLOW. So the GLOW would go out and park his Land Rover somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and we'd have to find him. You know, or he'd. I think one of them had some inflatable tanks, so he'd blow up these. You know, be there going <laughs> blowing up these inflatable tanks. So you know, we uh, so we'd practice uh, you know, attacking that. So. It was actually a very intensive workup where we weren't distracted by pairs and fours lead workups. We weren't distracted by combat ready um, workups because the guys were all qualified leaders. You know, all the, the qualified leaders were there. Everybody was combat ready, and so it literally was doing the workup to get to, to down to 100 feet and then to, to to go. So, in many ways, the the workup was was it was better than the actual red flag itself. You know, because at red flag it was quite, it was quite regimented. Um, it was a fixed bit of airspace. Um, the weather was generally pretty good, so you you were in that airspace or you weren't. Um, once you got to know it fairly well, I mean, it, it didn't reflect it, Western Europe particularly well because it was desert with mountains as opposed to flat <laughs> with trees. Um, so there were all these sort of uh, those things, and, and for, in many ways, as I say, the um, the, the experience of the, the workup, people quite often would say, well, actually, the workup was better than the exercise itself, you know, in terms of uh, you know, the, the professionalism and, and, and to an extent fun as well. But um, yeah. What 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 impressed you about Red Flag then? What did you come away thinking that was, you know, what all the hype is about? The, uh, I mean, the whole thing, the, the, the whole concept in the first place, I think, that you could fly com- virtual you know, combat missions um, there, that you saw all the, the kit. Um, and also the um, incredible professionalism that was shown by the staff there and in terms of the, the staff who ran the exercise, the staff or the, the, the pilots who did the red air stuff, um, the guys who did the ground threats and everything else uh, were really, I mean, in, incredibly, incredibly professional about how they did things. Um, and that was the flavor that also brought in. So, you know, I, I mentioned that before, you know, we tended to operate our little squadrons and didn't even talk to, you know, didn't, didn't talk to the nine squadron, why would you? Despite the fact they were just across the road. But suddenly on red flag, you'd be there and you, you know, you'd be right, you're, that you'd be in a package which uh, where suddenly you've got um uh, US Air Force um you know uh, um weasels you've got perhaps two other eight ships of uh, of US Air Force ground attack aircraft you've perhaps got a you know four ship of US Marine Corps um ground attack aircraft and you've all got to work together um you know you've you've also got your fighter sweep and and all that kind of stuff and you know and so now from being quite insular into right how does it all work together how do you do things how are we going to fit this together um and so and actually, that when the Gulf War came along, um, in the experience of the guys there, and certainly when operations after the Gulf War came along, which is my experience, having done all that, um, really um, you know, made it very, very easy to then operate with the, with the Americans in these large scale packages that um, you know where you know, Cormeos combined air operations, um, you know, because because you'd seen it and done it, um, and and and, seen it, and also you know, the, the great thing about Flag was um, the debrief. After you flew the mission, everybody came in big amphitheatre. I, I talked um, last time, I think, about the uh, Dechimano, the air combat instrumentation um, uh, range. The same thing was there on this massive scale, covering you know, sort of uh, airspace the size of you know sort of um, most of England and Wales, or central England and Wales, with ev- all the aeroplanes with with um, pods on, so you could see exactly where they went, what they did, who did what, um, and it all came together. And so you really could learn the lessons of what you've done right, what you hadn't done right. Um, uh, you know, so so, and that that was the big, yeah, you know, the big thing about it really was was flying it in realistic conditions, but then also having the luxury to be able to look back at it and say, well, how did that? Yeah, what did what did we get right? What could we do better? Um, do do you have any 
particular memories of particular sorties that you flew um were there any that really stood out to you um the ones that stood out usually stood out for the wrong reasons <laughs> i can remember i remember whinging men because one of the flight commands was that he wanted a great idea if we if we did a strafe attack somewhere so we cast always always guns out <laughs> Once you start loading guns, the airplanes are going to be pointed in different directions, safe headings, and the rest of it. And I, I was very anti this and made my um, made my thoughts known and thought it was not a waste of space and blah blah blah. Of course, we set off on this day, and um, I, I, again, we were limited in where we could go, what we could do, what evasion we could do because we had guns, live guns, and I popped up, got on the target, switches live, pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. I couldn't believe it. And what had happened was the um, the, the, the electrical connectors had, had come had worked themselves loose, and the, both guns were disconnected electrically. So I couldn't fire the guns. So I, not only had I whinged and moaned, I then flown the sortie, and it nothing. That, yeah, I mean, other ones where um, where I was going to say they, they to an extent they all meld into they all meld into a bit of um, of um, one because I did I think I did. A, Four, I think, on my first first two tours. No, I certainly did three, and then I went back and did a, did a fourth one later on. <clears throat> Actually, that fourth was quite interesting because it really right at so even before the Gulf War, and I think it was Chuck Horner. I think was running one of the exercises that we did, and he was very anti us being at low level. Was desperately trying to get us to got to medium level for for the, the purpose of this exercise. To which uh, we all turned and said, "Well, no, we do low level, and we're to practice low level. That's what we're going to do." Um, little did people know that they'd be then called upon to do it. But the deal with um, the uh, when I did the, the last one on my on my last tour um, was that we it was half day and half night. So the previous ones had been day. So we ended up doing a night um, flag, which was interesting because you then did as I mentioned, you know, as you might think the TF stuff, but also we did a couple of medium level sorties. And uh, I remember that hooting around in this thing. And we, so you can't see anybody because you haven't got goggles on, and the only way you can know that you're because you know, the, 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 there's a route, but people start manoeuvring and things. So the only way you do it is by you've got your own height band to stay in. And so we went hurtling off and we flew this route, not seeing a single other person other than loads of lights sort of flashing around and flares coming off and the rest of it. As we were there, jinking, going 4G one way, 4G the other way, pumping flares out, and God knows what's <laughs> on chaff and God knows what else. We were really not much of a clue as to what had gone on, really. So it was quite an education looking at the, the debrief afterwards. It's it great. It's great fun, but um, yeah. Did you have a uh, a sort of moment? So one of the things you know behind the Red Air experience, in particular, using actual Russian or, or Soviet kit um, like the Red Eagles did, or um, yeah, I think the Talija Peak electronic combat range does with with Soviet systems. Yes, yeah, uh, where, where you looked at your your RHWR and you saw a six on it or an eight on it, and and it sort of you know, did you have that buck fever moment or anything that? Yeah, very much. So, I mean, certainly those the, the, the SAM systems. Um, yes, all those things. Yeah, you got locked up by SAM six. It doesn't often make the heart race. And uh, you know, again, doing all you know, manoeuvring and uh, firing out chaff and trying to put the thing so it can, the CW jammer can, can go onto it and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean that that was the big thing for us. Was and as I mentioned previously, you know, we always saw as the big threat of the the, the SAMs. Mm. So from that perspective, it, it, it was it, it was it was brilliant actually, and particularly trying you know, terrain screening. And you suddenly found that you know hundred feet. Even the slightest fold in the ground can can give you a massive advantage. So, you know, a thirty foot dip, you know, suddenly now instead of hundred feet above you know, above the the, the the thing that's trying to shoot you, now we're only seventy feet, 
Um, and so, you know, right at the bottom of, of, of or very much beneath, beneath where it where it can actually, um, you know, lock onto you and that. So it was, yeah, it was fantastic for that perspective. Air to air, yes, reasonably so. Not, and not so much in that the, um, you know, they could see us quite easily because we were dark painted airplanes against a sandy coloured background and we're flying so low that the shadow, you know, you could see the shadows. So from that perspective, the guys could sit up at 20 or 1,000 feet and see us coming and, you know, mm. it, but again, our tactics were designed against the Russians in Western Europe, not against you know F fives um, in in America. So, and and I think they realised that as well. And, and and again, the professionalism was such that they you know they they, they played you know they, they played the game. They played being Russians over 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 Europe for us. I mean, I think was yeah, the F fives are very very difficult aeroplane to see. But I mean, that's what everybody will say to you. You know, the guys of you know Phantom guys doing it as uh, as you know air to air and everything else. Mm. Um, small aeroplanes are difficult to see. So that that creates a nice sort of segue then into mm. into your um, Iraq experience and, and you you as you mentioned you didn't go to the sort of August through January <laughs> first Gulf War in nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one you were I think an instructor at Chivno weren't you that's right I had a war. fantastic war yeah Fly, flying the Hawk <laughs> I really enjoyed it I was doing this sort of recreational flying and, and and watching it all you know drinking beer in Devon and uh, you know uh, um, sitting on the beach watching scantily clad women and that kind of stuff that you should do and uh, meanwhile on the telly there were all these blokes who were being shot at by Arabs um, and I know that that part of me felt that I should be there um, and probably most of part of them thought that um, they should be where I am so I mean whilst I you know now 40 30 years on for them they, they, they can all get together and have great reunions and, and, and talk about how wonderful they were and, and, and I, I would feel very uncomfortable to go along to one of those because I wasn't there yeah. Um, I think I had a better deal, really. <laughs> um, but I did. I mean, one of the things that I did after about the first day or two days when they'd lost you know, three airplanes at that stage is I rang up the poster, who's um, a, a guy that I end up later. He, used to be, he ended up being my, my, my squadron boss later on. But and I knew him from the conversion. He's one of the guys who helped me get through the tornado conversion unit. And I said to him, um, "I'm here. You know, I've been, only been off. So I've been off. I've, so I've been off at one squadron for six months. I said, if you can get me into a tornado, you know, I could be." Combat ready again in, in you know in, in a week, and uh, you know I, if we run we run out of people, I'll go out there. And he said, "You're you're in the queue behind me." He said, <laughs> "But I don't think we're going to be needed." Needed, and uh, and indeed we weren't. But um, no, I mean, I, I, there was part of me. My perfect, I, as I've mentioned, we were team animals, and you know, we, I, I lived with thirty one squadron for two and a half years. I just left them, um, and I still kind of felt that you know I still wore thirty one squadron badge on my flying suit when I was at Chivna. And the, the guys were off at war, and I felt that I should have been there with them because we were part of the team. And I just kind of felt like I was letting them down by not being there. They might be thinking that I was doing them a favour by not being there, but there we go. But that that was my that was my thought at the time. I thought, you know, really, I, I did feel guilty. I did feel bad. And professionally, obviously, having spent you know five years flying the airplane, having been combat ready, having you know, I, I felt that I should be, you know, I'd always expected to, to do the job that the Queen paid me very good money to do, really, uh, mm-hmm. by being there. But um, but it wasn't to be, and as I say, I'm, I'm not sad that I, that I didn't go. I'm, I'm, I just actually thank my lucky stars that I didn't. You know, I was, I was very, very fortunate. Well, obviously, from you know, from from my point of view, I talked to um, Adam Robinson. Mm. Um, he told me about his war, mm. and of course, you've just referenced the fact that the RAF was um, primed to go in at low level. That was the the tactic and the, the weapons delivery that it wanted to do. Uh, and Horner was looking for you guys to go yeah. and, and practice medium level. And of course, that transpired in the end. The, the yeah. low level um, option was taken off the table. Presumably, the RAF decided that itself. But what, when you got back to the tornado, then what? 
what changes did you notice then in the way that it was operating in how it had been um let's say invested in in terms of capabilities in terms of the addition of uh, a laser guided bomb capability um were, were there real sort of uh, sea changes in the way that the force was operating when you returned to it I wouldn't say sea changes because we did still retain the low-level role and that's still seen very much as our primary role still, although obviously the Russians had gone home, but <clears throat> we were still the RAF um, tactical, um, tactical doctrine was uh, was still low-level flying. So we still did that. And, you know, again, it was, it's one of those things that's skill to keep because you don't know when you might need it next. Um, so we still did that, but we did. We started looking at medium level operations more seriously, and we did start practicing them a bit. Um, and again, from my perspective, it helped. I'd been to Chivna, where obviously we'd done quite a lot of air to air stuff. So again, I, I was in the groove for, for thinking about you know, how we might employ the airplane, you know, tactically air to air, all that kind of stuff. How how we defend ourselves, etc. Um, so we, we, it was kind of we'd added that string to our bow rather than taking another one off as it were so we were doing we were doing more we did the other thing was that we'd stopped low flying in germany because um low flying didn't stop below a thousand feet i think it was 1500 feet so that it was pointless trying to do it so we would unless there was nothing else to do we would generally go high to low into uh, into the uk uh, as i mentioned earlier we, we had a turnaround facility at lucas so that's what we tended to do on the way across medium level not much else to do well why not put a medium level sort of a simulated attack in there you know pretend that you know, you, you're doing a, a, a laser attack you know one, one of you with a designated pod one of you with the bombs because that's again we didn't have enough pods to go around and, and we, we the airplane i don't think was quite capable of self-designating at that stage well it did very late, later did get the software to be able to do it um <clears throat> so so yeah we did the 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 we had changed. We'd moved away from the, the from the low level in Germany and fighting the Russians into low level in the UK. Not quite sure who we're fighting and medium level as well. Who knows when you might need it again? Um, stage of things. So uh, when I arrived, so and I remember actually in the summer, I went off on my summer holidays, and that was when the um, the no fly zone was established in in over southern Iraq. And I remember reading it, thinking, yeah, whatever. I think they'd sent a couple of tornado um, recce tornadoes out there. We went to recce squadron, um, so I thought, well, there's uh, bad luck then, really. <laughs> yeah, we'll continue doing as as we've always done. Um, and then when I came back, um, things had changed, and they said, right, you know, we've all they've changed their minds now because well, the tornado went out there, but of course the recce tornado was um, designed for low level, designed to fly at around you know, hundred feet and take photographs, not at twenty thousand feet and take photographs. So it mm. turned out to be a bit of a chocolate teapot, and they uh, and so suddenly the things open to anybody now. And the um, Rather, because there were no recce pods for the tornado at that stage, the the, the idea was, well, we'll, go, we'll use the laser guidance pods, the tile pods, of which there were two in existence, um, three in existence, I think. To, to the, no, it was, it was two. And they were both out there in theatre. So we you weren't ever going to see one until you got out there to do the job with it. So wow. we we did actually do a bit, and, and I was insistent that we did a workup, actually. But, or the, the boss had said this, we need to do a workup. And I sort of said, well, we need to do medium-level tactics. We need to do some medium-level fill with phantoms. We need to drop bombs from medium-level, all these things. So I, I, I ensured that we did all that because I, I was given the job of, of, of sorting the workup. Um, so organised lots of tanking so that we were up to speed on that. I organised lots of – went up to uh, Garvey um, – range up on um, Cape Wrath to drop live bombs. They weren't laser bombs, but they were, they were live freefall, but just go through the is, motions. Is that the rock, that rock that's in the middle it of is, the yeah, sea? Yes, yeah, that's right, yes, yeah. Okay. Yes, huge great rock that's, of, uh, yes, 
none the worse for it, I don't think. <laughs> um, but it's the, yeah, it's the one place in, uh, I think, in the UK where you can drop live thousand pound bombs. So uh, we, we went up there to drop. So we actually dropped up live thousand pound bombs. We've done that. Uh, we organized a fill with the F3 squadrons and again from Lucas. And then we'd land and then they'd debrief us on what they thought of, of, of tactics and things, what we did done well, what we hadn't done well. Um, so we did a bit of all that. Um, we carried on doing some low-level stuff just to keep our hand in. Again, you don't, you don't know when you might need it, but also it sort of keeps your skills honed, really, if, you know, if you're used to doing those things. And so when we went out to um, Iraq, it was basically a, a sort of reconnaissance job. Well, A, reconnaissance, and B, kind of filling the airspace, really, to, 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 um, you know, to, to, to make the point to the Iraqis that we could find it and they couldn't. Um, <laughs> there were, I mean, a better airplane would have been the F3. They should have sent the F3s out there, really, as, as fighters to, to you know, maintain the, the, the zone because we... we yeah, we, we we weren't fighters by any stretch of the imagination, and we and we literally were there, as, you know, to to fly, and we were given a whole lot of points of interest uh, to cover, and we'd so we, we'd fly with the tile pods, and and we do, I think they're about three three and a half hour four hour sorties, um, so you'd fly up from Bahrain, which were uh, sorry Dharan near Bahrain where we were based, up to the tanker, take on fuel over uh, Iraq to the various points of interest. We'd then film them with the um, with the tile pod. We'd fly in uh, as a four-ship, and then in, in over Iraq, Sausage side, we'd, we'd do into two pairs, one with a pod, one without. So we had what we called the, 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 you know, the tile airplane, which was the recce airplane, and the other was the was, was it was called the shooter. Um, the idea was that you, you were there as, as an escort for the, for the tile, because the tile guy would be heads in looking at the... Um, uh, look, look at the imagery <clears throat> trying to find the various um, points of interest uh, what he what neither of you could see was what's underneath you so you need to be stepped out in in, in battle to, to to see what's beneath you in case somebody fired a, a rocket at you um and, and also of course because because the other crew were so um you know so focused on what they're doing you need someone else to keep the big picture so mm. the, so we got as a four ship tank and then split into two pairs cover the various points of interest come back and back into Dharan again sort of uh, four hours later um did you get any trade? Was that did anyone lock you up? Did anyone come after you? Um, not at that stage. Um, one of the things that had been noted was that when the um, the Iraqis started to um, first, they started to fly into the no-fly zone when they thought the American fighters weren't there. So as the Americans turned cold or or sent one back to the tanker, we're just about to hand over. Uh, MiG twenty five would come zooming in at Mach three and then sort of turn around and go back out again just to make the point. So that had happened, and we also thought that there were some MiG twenty three I think involved that we thought thought were again trying to do a similar take a dash in and then take a pot shot at one of the airplane one of the um, coalition aircraft in there. So possibly us even in the knowledge that you know we we weren't um, although we had the the, the sidewinders on board we we didn't have air to air radar or anything. So yeah, we'd been perhaps relatively easy meet. Um, unable or w- probably wouldn't shoot at them first, as it were. So <clears throat> that, that, that did start happening. And also, it's a bit point December '92 now. Um, Saddam did say he was going to take back the airspace, and they started deploying uh, Sam two sites. Sam two, Sam three, no, Sam three, I think, started appearing underneath the no-fly zone to, to threaten us. So whether they were real or not, we don't know. We were told these sites were there. In fact, one of the points of interest that we were uh, that we had to cover was you know a couple of, of SA three sites or suspected sites. We were going to go over and film that area to see if the photographers could find it. So that's how things started going in um, uh, at the end of um, 93. And then I think uh, 27th of December 92, um, one of these, and I can't remember, I think it was a Foxbat came in, and actually what had happened was that the the Iraqis had spotted that the French were French Mirages were in there as, as um, doing the air work, 
Um, and they knew, because they flew Mirage themselves, what the endurance of Mirage was. So they'd see the guys come in and go, right, they'll be there for you know another 45 minutes, and then he's going. So at 46 minutes, a Foxbat would come zooming in. And uh, so wh- what happened this day was the Americans got clever. And so I, I gather, this is a, a gossip rather than truth, but uh, I, I gather uh, went in using a French call sign. And of course, the eagle stays on stage for considerably <laughs> longer. So the Foxbat came in to be met by an eagle that said, thank you very much. In fact, it wasn't, it was an F-16 because uh, it was yeah. the first, uh, I think it was one of the first, uh, yeah, um, Amram or um, Azra, yeah, Amram, I think, kills. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was an F-16D. Yeah, that's, yeah. F- f- first Amram kill. Yeah. So the guy went in expecting to see the back end of some mirrors and the front end of an F-16D instead. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was what sort of started kicking things off. And it slowly got tension started ratcheting up and um the americans decided that it'd be a very clever idea to go in and as a, well various plans came up of which the most politically sensible one shall we say came up from the u.s navy and they, what their idea was to as they as they put it to poke out the eyes and ears of the um <coughs> of the defense system south of the of the 32nd parallel so they identified um two combat operation centers and air defense uh, nodes and uh, and various communication nodes uh, and i think a couple of, of sam sites as well and so um they with then there was this coalition coalition um airstrike against them and again it was much like a medium level red flag in many ways you know um, right some some so was the package leader right in, in you go we we're going to put four tornadoes up so we're now working with the french uh with the um the F-15E guys who, who were going in at various targets, the F-117 guys who were going to take other targets, and the F-15C guys who were going to provide the cover, plus the U.S. Navy who were going to send in A-6s, F-14s. Uh, so, again, putting all that together was really quite, you know, in many ways quite straightforward in that we were quite used to doing that through through having operated you know, through that system in, in Red Flag. Um, and that, that was our, yeah, that was our bit. So we went off on the 13th of Jan in '93. Four aircraft. Again, we'd um, we'd use the tiled as a as a refuge sensor. We hadn't really we hadn't used it to drop bombs. In fact, I'd never dropped a laser guided. I hadn't even seen a laser guided bomb. I went out and found them on the aeroplane. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and in fact, now that's right. It was, it was the twelfth of January. We went out to the aeroplanes, and literally, it's quite funny because we'd we'd planned it all. We we're ready to go. We keyed up to go, and the um, the ground crew were kind of very. We were quite casual because we didn't know what they knew or what we could tell them. They didn't really know what they could tell them. They knew we were going somewhere, but they weren't quite sure. And it was all a bit odd. And we were just strapping in, and then we were told it was cancelled. So there's a hmm. By which time, we kind of already told them the guys a bit. But anyway, but then it was rescheduled the next day, the 13th of January. Um, so off we went. And um, it, was, well, it was one of those strange things, actually. Probably one of the most boring sources I've done in my life in many respects because uh, because it was all planned and it did all go pretty much according to the plan um we went out we um i i'd been actually i'd had a cold the previous week and i hadn't flown so i went up and we were suddenly into night tanking with these bombs on board so it was heavier than it had been and um, but anyway it it, it it worked we got filled up went off we flew our route um we got slightly uh, the winds were were somewhat different from the plan so we ended up having to use the reheat to accelerate up to back to get back on the timeline and the moment we did that we then got locked up by a SAM-3. Um, so then we had to go out of reheat and start dropping flares and chaff. And God knows what chaff actually not flares. But um, yeah, it was quite an interesting time, really. And afterwards, we discovered it was probably a false alarm. But we didn't know that at the time. But um, there was lots of uh, sort of heartbeats missed. Um, but actually, then it was a case of dropping the weapons and then coming back. 
pretty much as planned. So, um, and a successful, you know, pleasingly successful um, mission as well. We have tasked against a, a, a air defence headquarters building, which uh, which I was tasked against the, the, my pair, which we took out, and also a um, radar control building, which the other pair were, were um, tasked to take out, which they did as well. So they took that out. So yeah, we we, we did very well. We got to one hundred percent record of, of hits. Um, we then did a day light raid five days later, so the 18th of Jan, and that was against, um, so a similar um, radar control building, we, we, we were operating against a, a site near Alamara, and there was one that had been up at um, near Najaf, a bit further up in east, and right actually on the border, just very, very close to the 32nd parallel, which I remember being a bit twitched about, because I thought, well, you know, if the Iraqis want to take a pop, they've got the ideal chance, because we're going to be flying along this thing, and the... Uh, we had an F-16 escort. Of course, they were very excited because they thought, yeah, perhaps the Iraqis are going to pop at the tornadoes and uh, we can get, <laughs> get ourselves a uh, get ourselves a MiG. Um, but um, that one didn't go quite as well in, in that we the, the two pods that we had, the, the only two pods in the RAF, were both actually prototypes and they had different IR sensors or slightly different mm. and, or, and, or visual sensors. And one pod was good enough to be able to pick up this tiny little target that was in the middle of nowhere. And the other one, we were, actually, the guy couldn't detect it at all. And we, we had a look at his um, his film afterwards, and it, was, it just felt so hard for the guy because he was, he was desperately trying to find it, and he just couldn't. Um, so that one I didn't drop, but the other team did. But again, we took out the target that we were supposed to take out. So, uh, so yeah, success there. And on that one, actually, again, we didn't uh, – I think we saw some gun radar dish, you know, um, gun radars looking at us, but nothing actually locked us up, and we, we, we weren't aware of being fired on. Um, did it feel so, so tile just in case anyone's wondering is that's that's thermal imaging and laser de- designation systems that was yes, the uh, yeah. RAF's first uh, homegrown uh, laser, de- yeah, laser yeah. designation pod um but did it feel then having talked a lot about that um experience of flying at 100 feet 420 knots and now going up flying at medium altitude at night dropping on something looking at a sort of fuzzy picture which presumably you didn't see but the guy no, at the back it all, did no. Did it no, feel yeah, he, he saw a fuzzy radar picture, and, and the, the guy on the other airplane saw a fuzzy picture through his uh, through his pod. So yeah. So, so did you did you feel uh, like you'd been into combat? It's, it's, it's a difficult one. It was sort of yes and no, really. I mean, I think we felt that we had done because we we'd taken off with some bombs on board and we got rid of them. We'd seen seen big flashes as they went off, which, um, and we'd seen the film afterwards of the, from the pod. So yeah, we'd we felt we'd done that. Well, I think we felt that we had been let off a bit easily because we hadn't been shot at. I mean, again, we thought we had been shot and been locked up by a SAM-3, but but probably weren't, we discovered later. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't quite the excitement uh, that that one had expected. And, again, when you talk to guys who, who were out here in the Gulf with all the sort of um, AAA and stuff going on, I mean, what we did see is we went past Talil, what I thought was AAA, but well, in fact it must have been something like that, this sort of stream of tracer that came up um, that, but then, then went out again. So quite what that was, I have no idea. But yeah, we, we went past it at the same time as the, the um, F-117 was, was dropping its weapon. So whether it was something that came off that or not, I don't know. We saw these sort of streams of, of all the tracer coming up, but then they died off very quickly. Um, yeah, it was, and, and again, when we, when, we, when we dropped our weapon, we're turning away, you could see sort of flashes going on on the ground of probably people, very angry people firing AK-47s that weren't going to reach us up at 20,000 feet, but nevertheless. Um, but you're right, yeah, it, it didn't, I don't think it felt in the same way. And, so, and, and again, that's another reason why I'm very careful to um, distance myself from the guys who were there in, during the Gulf War, and particularly those first few low-level missions, because what they went through was a completely different experience. And, uh, you know, I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't wish to 
feel that I was boasting that I had, I'd done the same because I haven't. No. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those sort of, I don't know, yes, to an extent, yes, you had been in combat, but to, to an extent, uh, aware that we got off very, very lightly indeed. You said mm-hmm. before you started talking about actually going to Iraq, you, you had mentioned that you put your name forward and, and you sort of joked about um, you know, paying back mm. the Queen for the, uh, or doing your job for the Queen, you know, sort of paying back the Air Force mm. and, and, and uh, you know, it being time to sort of, um, you know, pay your dues. But do you feel then, in in retrospect, like you validated your um, capabilities, your prowess as a fighter pilot? Um, I, I know that's a, you know, that's one of the things that goes through many people's minds you know they want to be able to show they can do what they've been trained to do whether you're a pilot or a submariner or whatever do you, do you feel looking back that that you know southern watch gave you the opportunity to do that yeah i think very much so i, I it, it, exactly that i think it, it was it was the entry level if you like <laughs> you know I mean, the guys who, who, who did the gulf war obviously did an awful lot more but um yeah and i think I, that puts me certainly on the first rung of the of the ziggurat or whatever it was um and yes it was and, and you're right i mean it, it wasn't what i thought it was going to be it wasn't because again, we ended up because of the way things have worked. Instead of working as a close knit team, that various people have been put in from the UK, and so we ended up with uh, in my pair. There was a, a, the other airplane was flown by a, a couple of guys who come out from Marham. <clears throat> in my back seat was a guy from I was on 14 squadron at the time. There was a guy's back back seat was a guy from 31 squadron. So it wasn't mm-hmm. as if you know I'd expected to go with you know four of my close mates you know from the same squad so it wasn't that so so it was, it was very different from my experience and it's very different obviously from the low level stuff that we trained before but i think perhaps part of the if you like the the validation of that training was the fact that we were able to you know as four people from three different units whatever um operating in a way that none of us had been operated together before and none of us had particularly seen before that we were able to put it all together and it was the fact that we did this relentless practice that um you know, the, the, of the years before, that meant that we were able to be, you know, flexible enough, really, um, to, to to do it, and 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 have the capacity and mental agility or tactical agility, shall we say, to actually switch into something completely different and make that work. You know, I, th- I think that was the the validation of the whole sort of the, the air force's training and operational ethos was the fact that it could train you well enough doing something that you could then pick up the reins on something else and do that to a good enough standard. Mm. Um, where did you go from from there then uh i well i finished my tour on on the squadron um and i think it did it finish with a red flag it almost did i think with, with that last red flag that i did um and i it, it's funny looking back actually it's it, it's quite scary looking back and i got to the stage where i thought well you know i've flown tornadoes for you know this stage 10 years you know i've i've seen it done it ticked off most of it i've dropped bombs now do i need to do this anymore um, and I was getting to a stage where, you know, um, you know, we've got you on the program doing so and say, oh, no, I've got a bit of paperwork to do today. Give it to so-and-so, let him do some flying today. Um, uh, and I was being very fussy about what I flew and who I flew with and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I I was ready for something else. And I actually ended up being posted to – it was a nightmare, actually. I got posted to Ryan Darlin, which is the um, headquarters of what had been RF Germany. It had now become two group. Um I say nightmare because right down was a dump, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but but then you know so you, you're only there for about three months. And you go, I wish I was flying a tornado again. <laughs> I'd love to go back there, and uh, yeah, so yes, yeah, so I did that, and I did uh, I did a tour of there. That then cut short because the um, 
the headquarters was disbanded, and I then went to uh, Innsworth, Gloucestershire, which was the training command headquarters at the time, personnel training command, and I worked on the uh, replacement of the bulldog trainer, which was completely different from anything I'd seen before. Oh, yeah. You know, different job, but it was quite interesting. It was uh, one of the um, public finance initiative, uh, one of the the, the, the trailblazing um, projects for that. So I think there was a there was a prison being built somewhere, a hospital being so- built somewhere, and us getting this uh, aeroplane in. Uh, so that was interesting. But yeah, by then I decided I'd, I'd had enough, so I, I left and joined the airlines and became an airline pilot. Would you would would you change that decision if you had to go back and uh, and do it all over again? No, um, I the the decision was probably based on other things. The decision was based on having a young family. I mean, when you when you're young and single, which I was for most of that time, flying in the air force, it's great fun. The fact that it's dangerous doesn't even cross your mind. Uh, the fact that you know the job hasn't been you know, the, the program still needs to be written and it's five o'clock and uh, okay guys well i'll stay on i'll do it. i'll stay for another couple of hours and do it i'll see you in the bar at eight or whatever it's going to be mm. you know you, you can't do that when you've got kids you can't do that when you, you know you can't do it when you've got a wife or you won't have a wife for much longer um, but you know your kids want to see you you've got other you know, there, there are other um more important pressing issues in your life really and and so i had a great time but it, it was kind of it was those issues it was whether I believed in, given that I'd given up my flight, because I had given up my flight at that stage. You know, you start climbing the greasy pole of the, you know, the, of the career um, ladder in the Air Force. You're not going to do a lot more flying. You will be sitting headquarters, sort of, um, you know, writing, writing and stuff. And I thought, well, I'd actually just been selected to go to Staff College. Uh, so I think, well, I've done. So I've done 18 months at Rendell and 18 months at um, Innsworth. I was going to spend a year there. I then probably going to spend a year uh, working in a in a cupboard in MOD. All the hours that God sends on a project that then get cancelled just as I finished, you know, that year. Mm. Yeah, and then I, then I might, if I was lucky, might get picked up to maybe go back and command a squadron or something like that. So you know, it, I wasn't going to fly for ages. I wasn't going to see my kids for ages. We were going to end up moving ho- home sort of three or four times. Well, it's not worth it, is it really? Mm. Um, so that, yeah, the, the, those. So, but no, you, I wouldn't change it. I, I had a great time. The Air Force had changed. I'd I'd seen that change. I'd been in it, um, and I'd enjoyed what I did. And, and I went away from it, sort of. With, with fond memories and without getting bitter and twisted about it. So, uh, How many hours yeah. did you get in total? Do you remember? Um, military hours. Uh, well, I now got uh, about 1,700, 1,800 on the Tornado, about a on the Hawk. I think I, I think I got about four and a half, five thousand 5,000 flying hours, I think, in, in the Air Force, something like that. And then I've done another. That was in the space of, you know, including all my, you know, when, when I started in 78, so that was in the space of 19 years. And then over the next sort of 19 years, I got about another sort of 15,000. So, so it shows how it, you know, what, how the sort of flying changes depending on the you know, yeah. civilian and military flying. So. If, it, if it's not a strange question, does it sometimes feel like it was all a bit of a dream that it happened to somebody else? I mean, does the passage of time sort of distance you from the experience? Or, you know, if somebody sat you in a tornado tomorrow, do you think you would be right at home quite quickly? Um, yes and no, in a way that it's, it's kind of um, almost you know, it's sort of become sublim- subliminally written on your brain. I think all, all those sort of things that you, you know, as, as a young man that you had that you did. You're right; it does feel like it happened to somebody else. But every so often, little bits come back where you know, I go, "Yeah, I remember that." And you know, dear old Cookie and I will talk about the wings swept things over a beer sometime. You know, with, you know thirty years later. Um, so you know, and that kind of thing does go on. With you know, little bits come sparking back. Um, I found writing the book when I did that to be very therapeutic, and uh, you know, and again, it, it brought memories back. Um, but yeah, I, I did actually. I have sat in a tornado a couple of times, and last 
was it the time last time or the time before that? I remember sitting in it and having been used to an airliner cockpit for however many years at that stage, for 20 years. No, it wasn't there. It was probably about 10, 10 years. I sat in this thing and I couldn't believe how small it was. Mm. It's tiny. I remember thinking the time it was being quite But yes, I, I did remember where things were and the general pattern of things. I probably could have a bit thought of started it up. And uh, I guess once you get airborne, it probably would be uh, like riding a bike, come back to you. Um, I remember how to do it. Yeah. Did, did I'd love to have a go, but <laughs> did you miss it? I mean, going from that kind of flying to to airline flying. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, it was. It, it, I mean, flying a faster airplane is is exponentially more fun than flying an airliner. Um, it's actually the control of the airplane is easier because you've got a stick and you pull back, and the cows immediately get smaller, and uh, you know it rolls, and you can do what you like with it pretty much carefree. Um, in an airline, you're pretty much always flying it through the flight director system. So you, you know, and, and a lot of stuff's done on the autopilot rather than. And in fact, I mean, I got to a stage where I used to enjoy flying more using the autopilot than hand flying it because the autopilot doesn't look. You know, it's like the driver who comes to roundabout stops with handbrake on. Look, there's no cars coming. Handbrake off into gear and drive around the roundabout. That kind of stuff, as opposed to slow down, nobody coming, carry on smoothly around. So I used to really enjoy doing that. And the right, you come into the whole. How can you do a continuous descent down, leave the whole come out here? How can you without putting speed brakes out of this? How can you slow down the airplane and, and everything, get everything popped out? You know, that that to me was was a, was a yeah was was quite rewarding. I mean, it's. No, airline flying is is probably a it, it, it's a means to an end, as in pay off the mortgage type job, as opposed to yeah. a um, an end in itself. I let's have great fun, <laughs> even if it is a bit dangerous, which is which is air force flying. So, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I miss the fun of the air force flying more than anything else. I miss the camaraderie of being on a squadron, a tight knit group, doing you know, f- feeling focused and doing the same job. I mean, in an airline, you're always in the company of strangers, um, but. Um, yeah. Again, I, I was aware that when I moved on, that I, you know, I, that, I, that I had moved on. That the time was right for me to finish and, and, and to do something different. Mike, I have one more question for me, and then if I may, just a few questions from my, my Discord channel, which is a place where people can go and sort of. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, 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 I'm quite happy to chat away about. So I'm just a bit yes. guilty about taking your no, time. No, no, no. A couple of hours already. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah, we're at two hours and yeah. well, almost two hours. It's, it's almost good. two hours. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a good thing because I think, um, yeah, if, you, if we'd uh, if it wasn't working, we would uh, probably have ended it much sooner. So. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. yeah. Um So, so yeah, my question was going to be around you mentioned your son him going through the pipeline at the moment what, what advice yeah. have you given him and uh to, you're doing the uas um training um flying you, you mentioned that earlier so somebody listening to this who maybe wants to join the RAF, become a pilot or become air crew um i, I guess you're not going to give advice to uh, somebody who wants to join and become an engineer so but so the flying trades what advice would you give them my advice would be to go for it it's a uh, a uniquely rewarding job in terms of feeling you're doing something useful and feeling that you're doing something that is exhilarating and exciting um I, it is adequately rewarding in terms of remuneration i mean you, you don't do it because you want to become rich you do it because you want to do a job with a purpose and because you want to do a job that's exhilarating fun that's difficult and challenging and it is difficult and challenging um which is why it is rewarding to you know professionally rewarding so you know you do have to go with it you have to be endlessly patient in the in today's air force in terms of um being messed around but i mean that's always been the way you know the, the, the military has always messed people around and nothing changes really just that you know just the way they mess you around um so and you will frequently um 
very frequently doubt yourself. You will frequently, because things are, you know, it is challenging, it is difficult, and you will frequently wonder if you will measure up to it. You know, it, it is one of those things that, that, that constantly challenges you, that constantly makes you question your yourself. Um, and more than anything else, it, you know, going through flying training and, and, and even you know, succeeding as a, as a military pilot is a um, perhaps the, the, what you need most is well a, a faith in yourself, but also um, the, the thought that you're never going to give up. You know, the fact that you won't let the bastards get you down, that you will get through, you will show them that you can do it, uh, you will get the job done. And I think those are the two things really that you know to believe in yourself that you can do it, and also to never ever ever give up. Um, are the, are, the, are the two things, but yes, you know, it's it's a one of those sort of, um, you know, it, it, it's it's a hard, challenging journey. But that's not to say it isn't actually very very in, in, enjoyable on on a lot of occasions. You know, there there is stress, there's there's yeah, there's sadness, uh, but there's an awful lot of exhilaration and happiness and thrills and um, you know satisfaction on the way. Excellent. So. Let me go to so some of these you might have already answered in the four hours or so that we've been talking. So, um, <laughs> but, but uh, so Ghost Dog asks, um, I don't know because we haven't mentioned this, so I don't know if this was in when you were in, but uh, how confident were you in the use of alarm, the um, anti radiation missile? Was that in around? Um, yeah, it came in actually, it just came in just before the Gulf War. So, just I was leaving Germany the first time to go to Germany when I came back. The nine squadron and thirty one squadron, I think, are both equipped with alarm. They become supposedly specialist alarm squadrons. Um, yeah, it, the thing about alarm is that you fired it off and you didn't know what it was going to do or what it actually did because it decided <laughs> itself. It's one of those autonomous things. Wasn't it? It, it, it lurked until it saw a radar and decided whether it was going to attack it. Or if it did, then it went off and attacked it. So you would never know whether you, whether that missile had actually taken out a radar or not. So it. And I don't know what was to stop two alarms or three alarms all seeing the same radar. I mean, oh, go for that. Yeah. And then there being none for the other. So um, we, I, I think we're reasonably confident in it. Um, I think we're rather more confident in that than we had been in JP233, which was a sort of nightmare weapon. Um, I think we were very confident in the um, the weasels, the um, the harm, uh, 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 harm shooters, um, because they were that's what they did professionally all the time and although nine and 31 were supposedly specialist alarm squadrons they didn't have the electronic warfare kit mm. that the american weasels had nor did they have the training uh, nor the practice so um yes we had a degree of um uh, a degree in faith in it and I, I guess if we were probably going to go you know once the cold war was over we would be heading off to you know as happened to um you know, less, uh, you know, um, less intensive uh, operation, shall we say, then, yeah, probably alarm would be good enough for government work, really. So, yeah, I didn't really have strong feelings either way, but I suspect it, pro- it probably would work. Good. So, I hoped it would. <laughs> so, um, Megami asks, um, and I guess you're going to have to think of the, the, the twin sticker on this, but... Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, was in the back seat? How are they trained to land the plane? They're not. No, not. <laughs> no, they're not at all, and they, they weren't expected to. And really, if the pilot was incapacitated, they'd pull a handle and they'd, they, you know, you'd both punch out. Um, some of the guys had um, had done flying training, but really, unless you were unless you were used to flying the back of an aeroplane, I mean, if you'd never landed a tornado before, so you know, so, you know the chance of being able to do so from the back seat 
having never flown one before, actually do that successfully without killing you both would be pretty minimal. So they, they, they weren't at all. I mean, we, we followed the, the you know, much like the, um, uh, the US Navy, you know, guy in the back. Um, and in fact, the USAF had come that way as well. Originally, the USAF had two stickers, but mm-hmm. uh, with it. Um, but I think certainly, I think the weasel ones were, were single stick in the front. I don't know what the other, other F fours were like, but um, <clears throat> no, we did. We, they, they had no, they weren't pilots, and they, they weren't expected to be either. Did you did you ever fly in the back of the twin sticker? I did. Did I fly in the back of the twin sticker? I don't think I, I, I did fly in the back of the strike a couple of times because I think there was some talk about me getting rear seat qualified for. Uh, I think as an uh, an air fuel instructor, I think, and also at one stage, I think they were looking at perhaps as an instrument rating examiner. But I, but I never did either of those okay. things in the backseat. So I, I think I got the rides playing with a kit, which just made me feel sick, and uh, I wasn't desperately sad when nothing happened, nothing came of it. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so Phil asks, Phil D asks, I'd love to hear more about tornado and electronic warfare. Wasn't there talk in the mid thousands or or noughties about turning old F threes into dedicated wild weasel aircraft? Uh, there was, yeah. yeah, there was because I think and I, I think Eleven Squadron ends up being they discovered that they could carry alarm, and they also discovered that because the um, RHWR fit on a Tornado three was was better than a GR one because it was actually designed with a sort of uh, an ability to sort of triangulate. That they could actually um, use that, that equipment to um, to actually locate uh, enemy missile batteries and things, and so you, the, the idea was this: that this airplane could be used. And I think they did unofficially, I think, um, call them the EF three. Mm. Um, and so the thing, but again, the, the, according to the F three crews, <laughs> but their fighter pilots say, "Would you believe what they said anyway?" Um, the, it, the, it was very effective, and, and their feeling was that actually they they the airplane fit was so good in, in in that role that actually it would have then challenged the GR four at a time when money was getting tight. Really. So I think it was a case of saying, well, actually, you know, do we keep one squadron of F threes on just for this role, and do we therefore ditch two squadrons of GR fours to pay for it, or do we just say, yeah, off you go, and then we'll hang the the alarms on the GR four? And I think that the Decision was made, I suspect, as all decisions are really, but you know, by by the um, by the accountants rather than uh, by you know, the actual tactical um, needs. And I suspect that it probably would have been a very good airplane, actually. Um, in fact, it'd been ideal, really, to, to have had that to have a couple of um, radar missiles on board as well to be able to sort of to go in as a, as both a sweep and a, and, and a, you know sort of sweep both enemy aircraft and mm. you know, enemy uh, ground. Um, Ground threats. So yeah, it's a shame it didn't go anywhere really. But um, I think you're, you're right. It, it was there. I think in the, in, in the early noughties and then uh, then got killed off. What about stand standoff <clears throat> weapons? Though, because he, he also asks about that. Phil, Phil asked about the shifting tactics from you know iron bombs or even JP two three three, which we've kind of touched on, and we talked about laser guided bombs. Were you around for any of the conversations about storm shadow or any? And brimstone probably is much much later. But was storm shadow being discussed when you were still? No, um, I think it might have been a sort of um, in, 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 yeah discussed in, in, in the margins, but uh, no, it was not something wasn't anything that I've ever had anything to do with or came close to. I mean, the only missile at the time was Sea Eagle, um, which again I was not in, involved in at all. But yeah, I think we'd have welcomed uh, the whole the, you know, the concept of firing off 
instead of you know your JP two three three having to fly an airplane over, you know, better to take the airplane, point it in the right direction, make sure it's updated, and then send it off to do its own thing. Yeah. You know, to, the, the missile system. So I'm very much in favour, and we'd all be very much in favour of that if you can stand yourself off from. Uh, you know the, uh, the the target so much the better. And, you know, I'm sure anybody of the guys Adam and guys who flew the JP two three three missions over Iraq would would, would very much uh, agree with that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, there's nothing um, you know nothing big or clever about ever flying a target if you're going to shoot at you because you know why why get yourself shot at if you don't need to. Um, but again, you know the, the thing about a, you know an airplane like the Tornado is that it gives you almost infinite ability to to fire the the missile system in from where they're not expecting to come in. So that, that that's why, you know, your air delivery system gives you that flexibility to take a weapon somewhere and you know, where they're not expected to be fired from and, and fire it in. Yeah. So you know, very, very much the way that, you know, that, that we should go, I think. Uh, so Clockwork Raider, he asked about red flags. So you, you have talked about that. Yeah. Um, he also asked, how much on average were you flying a month? And do you know how well that compared to other NATO pilots? Yeah, the... Um, I can tell you exactly about 15 hours a month right through my career. Didn't matter what I did, it's 15 hours a month. It didn't matter if that's uh, 30 minute flight um, trips in the Hawk or three hour trips over, um, you know, sort of high low highs. The only exception to that was in the Gulf, where I think I flew 50 hours in two months. So that was rather more intensive, but that was due to longer, well, regular flying because we had all spare bits and uh, for the airplanes, so they kept they, they all kept flying and. Um, the uh, and the fact that we're flying those longer sorties i mean that's something that we haven't touched on at all is is the the inherent unreliability of the tornado i mean it was it was it wasn't good at all and it, and, and, and it was no better particularly after um, the gulf war when lots of money was saved by cutting on spares i mean some monkey decided that the, that we didn't need enough didn't need that many rb199 engines well engines lasted about 200 hours but he, he said oh well engines last you know whatever it is 500 hours no they don't <laughs> and so well, we ended up, <clears throat> I can remember when I, my last tour, and this is one reason why I was so pleased to get off the airplane in the end, and also when I was at Ryan Darling working on alternative desk, <clears> that at Bruggen, with four squadrons, there was usually one squadron away at, um, uh, out in America, either Red Flag or Goose Bay. There was usually one squadron away in the Gulf, um, and possibly another one off to Detchim and or something. So you probably end up with one and a half squadrons there total. Um, but with theoretically, given that the squadrons would, so were some airplanes have been out to, so I know each squadron gave up two airplanes out of the 15 it normally had to go to, to America for North American training, uh, maybe two aircraft to go out to operations. So even so, with 48 aircraft on the wing, um, let's say we've, you know, even if we've given eight of them away, there still should be 40 airplanes there. But you'd struggle, there'd possibly be two serviceable airplanes in the whole of that wing. Really? Yeah. And there were at one stage. I remember one of the jobs that my mate, that Benny, that I was showing the officer, was given was to go, go to Bruggen and count up how many airplanes there had no engines. So there are about twenty airplanes there with no engines because some monkey earlier so they'd save money by not buying engines. Did, did you have to keep that a secret? I mean, was that classified? I'm not sure. Um, it was. I mean, one of the problems with that, you see, is you is that you end up so you end up with. An airplane that's got one engine, and now you lose another another airplane losing an engine. So, well, what do we do? Well, we'll take the engine out, the good engine out of that airplane, leave it with no engines. So now we've got that one. So then a oh, we've the TFR's gone this airplane. Well, that one airplane with no engines is we could take the TFR out of that. So you end up robbing these things. So we ended up with about sort of ten Christmas trees, which is already all, but the workload for the ground crew has suddenly gone up to the roof now. So instead of fitting and getting a TFR out of the box and fitting it, they've got to get, um, undo one. 
they've then got to sign all the paperwork and done that. They're going to take Gloucester and then they've got to fit, fit the thing. Yeah. And then later they're going to have to do another change over there whenever the spare one comes. So the ground crew, I mean, their work just went astronomically through the roof. Uh, the flying rate went necessarily through the floor. Um, and so, yeah, that, that that was, again, one of the great frustrations. And, uh, I, you know, sometimes people were flying, I've said an average of 15 hours a month. Well, that might be flying 50 hours in two months on operations and then flying five hours a month for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was not satisfactory at all. Um, it's funny because that that almost well it does it has, has shades of the North Korean model. I mean, I know that North Korea does that. They buy hmm. or they you know have historically bought aircraft, and then when they break, they just shove them at the end of the airfield and use another one. And there's no real you hmm. know. So you get this base, and, and on on paper they've got a capability because they've got a certain number of airplanes, but actually most of them don't work. It's and I'm just amazed to hear that the you know back in the the 90s. Oh yeah, that's where we were there. Yeah, it's crazy. Because yeah. in fact, when I can remember it, um, a chipper, this guy called Henry de Corsier, he went off to fly with the Chilean. He did an exchange with the Chilean Air Force flying hunters, and that was one of the stories he said was that every day the flight from Argentina you know, used to come in. So every day the the ground crew would be up at dawn to push all these hunters out on the line, so there'd be a line of fifty hunters. The fact that only three of them had engines was neither here nor there. <laughs> but yeah, as long as the Argentinians saw all these things lined up, they went, "Oh dear, we best not come here." <laughs> so yeah, it was a bit like that, really. <laughs> um, so so he also asked what Quite also asked about. Um, he, he said. What was the process of learning how to fly with a TFR and how soiled were your pants after the first time <laughs> doing a TFR night sortie? Bizarrely, not very. Um, it, we had great confidence in it. But yes, you started off, I mean, we did it in the simulator, so you knew how it all worked. And you started off, I think you, you could, the TFR could be engaged from 1,500 feet and then in steps downwards. So, And in fact, when we started doing it, I think we weren't allowed to fly at night below 1,500 feet. So you, you initially at 1,500 feet, but that's a bit of a non-event then, frankly. Hmm. Um, but then as you step down, I think the lowest we got to was, uh, I think we did get down to 500 feet at night. Um, so you could, and again, that, and that was quite interesting. But yes, I mean, flying through the Highlands Islands, more than anything else, it gave me an incredible sense of confidence, actually. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was quite exciting. And you watch this sort of, you know, this ridge coming, marking down the, uh, you know, coming closer and closer. And then the aeroplane would pull up and, and then you could see, you know, how it was going you know, on, on the east scope, how it was maneuvering over it. Um, and it, I, I think, yeah, more than anything else, it was, I was just impressed at it, just looking at it, thinking, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, here I am in this uh, basically, you know, cruise missile hurtling along watching it do its thing. It's really impressive. <clears throat> so, yeah, no, but um, so, no sword pants, no, just re- really impressed with the machine at, at how good it was. And, and final question then, Mike. Um, this is from Sedlow. So, best QRA story and what was the worst weather you were ever scrambled in? Well, we were never scrambled in Curie. I mean, we, we we would only have gone in the event of nuclear war being declared. So, uh, we, we our our QRI was spent um, watching videos and playing Risk. So, okay. uh, I did. I think I did win one of the Risk games once. So that was good. Is that, that's, is that your best QRA story? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, actually, the other one was uh, what I've already mentioned about watching Witness. So they were in fact, well, I, the, 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 the the Witness story was that uh, one of the the now sadly much later killed. Um, was aware that all this, all the young pilots were. He, he was a, an elder gentleman, shall we say, uh, and he was aware that the young studs were got hugely excited every time this Top Gun thing came on. So he arrived from Q one day. Said, "Oh, guys, I've yeah, I've just been to pick up the um, the videos uh, yeah, from the NAFI or whatever." Oh, well, yeah, what you got? Oh, yeah, there's something called Top 
top gun or something. I thought, oh, crap, I didn't bring it. I was like, what? You did what? And I was like, no, just kidding. So, and the other one was we were watching the, the Sound of Music, and I remember us all, I remember looking around as I, you know, a little tear came to my eye and looked around, and there's everybody else going, oh, yeah, a bit of hay fever today. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so, as we were all slowly privately sobbing as we watched the, the Sound of Music. So uh, as, as, as we sat there with our, you know, on a nuclear armed airplanes, uh, you know, 50 yards away, waiting to go and <laughs> set the world on fire. <laughs> so yeah, we we, ne- we yeah we ne- we never got to uh, launch happily. <laughs> so I, I, when I, whenever I say it's my last question, I can never really be trusted because I do have one more question, but it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah. a good one. So so your books are they are really really good. Where where can people get hold of them? And if they wanted to sign copy, is there any way? Do you have a website? Um, um, are you, you just going to direct them to address Amazon? on it? But the, yeah, but the, the Amazon's the place to go. But if you if um, if you send me a, a personal message, I'm on I am on Twitter. Uh, there's a Michael Napier, so you can PM me that, and I'm on Facebook as well, so you can uh, Michael Napier. I think Michael Napier author, I think on um, on Twitter and just Michael Napier on Facebook. But yeah, if you send me a message, I mean the thing. I can't, I can't get the books. So I, or, or the, the publisher won't get get them to me any cheaper than you can get them from Amazon, and it means that I'd have to pay to post them to, to somebody. So either if they get them from Amazon, either if they want to pay the postage, send it to me, and I'll sign it and send it back. Or the other thing I've done for quite a few people is I've actually I haven't got one to show you. I've done a little sort of book plate with a little sort of you know printed thing off and sign that, and then put it through the post. And some people like that, so I'm more than happy to do that. But it's um, you can't. The publisher is Pen and Sword, and I'm not quite sure how much they're flogging them off for these days. But that's getting them directly from the publisher. They're certainly there on Amazon, um, and you can get them if you want to be a real cheapskate. You can get them on Kindle as well on Amazon. Um, but uh, obviously, clearly, I'd prefer you bought the hardback copy. <clears throat> um, but um, yeah, that's that, that's where they are at the moment. So yeah, they're available in there. And uh, you know, I, I think people have said they enjoyed it, so it's not just me trying to blow my own trumpet. Um, uh, yeah, good books. Uh, yeah. yeah, Mike, yeah. it's been a, a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for for your generosity, giving us your time for speaking so uh, frankly about the aeroplane. It's been great to learn about the tornado and, and about your experience. Um, and uh, I'm sure that at some point in the future there'll be a reason for us to ask if you'll come back on again. So-